Islam is a massive religion with over a billion members today. It has a very interesting history, and it's also dominant in the Middle East, where many falsely believe is the center of Bible prophecy. But what exactly will the role of Islam be in the end times, according to the Bible? That's our topic on today's episode of The Dance of Life. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thanks so much for being with me. Today we are continuing our end time series. So if you are just new, then make sure you subscribe or better yet, go to my website, danceoflife.com. The whole series will be uploaded there uh, for your reference that you can check out that way. Anything that happens maybe on YouTube or any of these other platforms, I can stay in touch with you. So make sure you go there, danceoflife.com, subscribe. I email people once a week or so, sometimes twice a week, but very low tech, no hassle. So today, if you have been with me, you know that we are continuing going through these various topics of the end times and and specifically Bible prophecy and revelation and Daniel. Now, we have talked a lot in the last couple episodes about some very big, serious topics. And today we're kind of switching gears with the topic of Islam. So the the first 10 episodes of this series, we talked about how the millennial kingdom, you know, what what is the nature of the millennial kingdom? That's the number one topic probably that divides people on the end times. There's a lot of topics, but if you could probably lump them in a few categories, it would be Who's who's Mystery Babylon? What's the identity of Mystery Babylon? And, you know, another category would be, what's the nature of the Millennial Kingdom? Is it a future reality where Jesus is ruling on the throne of David in Jerusalem for a thousand literal years? And enemies are being put under his feet. People are still dying. That kind of thing. Some kind of golden age, pseudo golden age, because there's going to still be sin and death, according to people who believe these things. Or is the Millennial Kingdom... Right now, is it a spiritual reality that Christ is ruling from heaven as king? And when he returns physically to earth, he's going to usher in eternity. He's going to destroy all these principalities, all these systems, and give the the kingdom back to the Father and rule on earth as the triune God and will be in eternity. So that's a big topic. And depending on what you believe about that, it really shapes your view about the end times because most of the monotheistic religions, Judaism, Islam, even Christianity, they believe in some future physical golden age of the Messiah. And all of these things are aligning very carefully by the beast in order to pull off possibly this false golden age where Satan will masquerade as the Son of God. That's what the second century Christians believed. If you remember, very early on in the series, we cited the Didac, which is a historical document of the church. It's not considered the you know part of the canon, as in inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it's a historical document of what people believed during those times. And they the Christians really believed and interpreted the Gospels and, and all these things that the apostles wrote about through their letters, that there would be a false Christ, a false appearing of Jesus, and that would be a masquerade of Satan. And so if that's the case, and certainly there's been a lot of reason to believe that it's possible, we looked at so many things, then we moved into Daniel and Revelation to begin slowly identifying who Mystery Babylon is. And of course, the 
ensuing 10 chapters after that, we saw that the papacy is the beast that Daniel saw through the little horn and that John saw through the first beast. We saw that this beast ruled for 1260 years, which is documented in history from 538 AD to 1798, that the beast received a mortal wound when the papacy, when the Pope was arrested and the papacy was declared basically over, right? It's a politically political wound. The Jesuits were banned also around that time. So everything kind of seemed like it was gone for about a hundred years or so. And then in the 1929, the Lateran Pact, basically the papal states were returned to the Pope. So politically that wound healed. But John tells us that there is a second beast in Revelation 13 that comes up and basically helps the first beast return to its former days of glory. And when it does return to its former days of glory, it appears as the woman riding the beast, which is what John saw as the final iteration of all of these Babylonian. I mean, it's one system, but all of these iterations, they keep going through time, and it ends with the woman riding the beast, which is basically a church, which is a woman, it's an apostate church, that rides a political system, a church-state union, and the beast, of course, is very reminiscent of all the beasts that you know that both Daniel and John saw through the fourth beast that Daniel saw with Rome and the little horn and the first beast that John saw. It's all the same system. And so the final iteration is a church-state union. And of course, we know that the woman, Mystery Babylon, sits on seven hills, and there's no other place in the world that is called the city of seven hills other than Rome. So it's very clear who this is talking about. Again, if you've studied history and if you, if all this is new, then I encourage you to go back and check those episodes. They're really good resources for you. Take notes, you know, watch them in parts if you have to, because some of them are a little bit longer. But, you know, ultimately, look, we have to dive into these things because nobody is talking about them. Very few people are talking about these things because most people now that we understand who the actual Antichrist power is, who the beast is, most people believe dispensationalist theology or eschatology, which is basically that the way that the Bible is read is a very physical, literal, fleshly way with a future physical temple being rebuilt and somebody stepping into that temple and proclaiming himself to be God. And the 1260 days mentioned in both Daniel and John are not, you know, prophetic years, right? So they're not prophetic days with their, where they last a year long because days are years, but rather literal days. And so you have this three and a half year period of peace and then there's a seven year tribulation. I mean, it's all nonsense. And so far, again, if you've been with me, hopefully I have proven that over and over again. But the problem that most people don't realize is that these ideas are very new and they're new because they were started during the counter-reformation. You have to remember that the papacy ruled with an iron fist for over a thousand years. And when the Reformation happened and people began to realize that they are under this beast and to identify the beast and to go back to the gospel and save by faith and grace and Jesus alone, all these things were a real problem for the beast. And so because you can't take out a grassroots movement with force, they had to develop a counter-grassroots movement, which is the counter-reformation. That's when the Jesuits were started. And again, if you look in history at every major 
Every major thing, it always has their signature all over it. We looked at the French Revolution and how that began. That was probably fomented by the Jesuits and the secret societies, most assuredly so. And it began this dialectic of left versus right, atheism, communism versus nationalism and religion. And that dialectic that was began, I mean, it's probably been around for a while. They've been using duality in the occult since the beginning of time. But that dialectic politically of left versus right was designed on purpose to push people to and fro, left and right, left and right, until ultimately the left would become so strong that you would want and beg for the right, which is what? A union of church and state. Now, all of this, again, sounds really crazy, but if you paid attention to the previous episodes where we talked about the image of the beast and who the second beast is and how this second beast, who is a false prophet, it's not an individual. Remember, beasts are kingdom and systems. So the second beast is the United States and how the United States has acted as a false prophet to shepherd people back into the mother church and to bring about this final church-state union. Again, it sounds super crazy because America is supposedly the land of the free and separation of church and state and all these different things, right? But we looked, the last, I believe, three or four episodes were about how the U.S. was never a Christian country. It was founded as a Luciferian experiment by Illuminati, Freemason, secret society members that were not Christians. Most decidedly so. They did not accept the divinity of Christ. They did not accept that he's the only way to be saved. They did not accept that mankind is desperately wicked and needs a savior. These people were the ones that founded the country. And we looked at the history of the United States. We looked at politics and how it's merging with religion. We looked at culture. We looked at things like Passion of the Christ, which was one of the most popular movies of all time, certainly Christian movies, over 600 million. I forget how much it grossed, but a lot of money and how it's basically just saturated with Catholic and even occult propaganda. So the question is, what's really going on here? What is what is happening in culture and society and spirituality? Even we looked at Protestants and how they're merging back with the Mother Church, how the charismatic movement is being used on one side to bring people back through the Holy Spirit. And, and, and of course, it's not the Holy Spirit. It's mystical experiences that have been around since the dawn of time. And how on the other side, they're using legalism, like the new perspective on Paul, which if you've never heard about it, don't worry. It's we talked about it in the episode. It's basically just one side you've got spiritual experiences, and on the other side you have cultural pushes towards seeing the Catholic paradigm, which is a works-based salvation. It's a physical situation where you are going and doing pilgrimages, going and venerating icons, going in relics, praying, you know, doing the fast and doing all the, of course, fasting is not evil or bad. It's It can be a tool to get closer to God, but the way that it's performed and expected in all of these workspace religions, it's a way to maintain, at the very least, because they'll never say it's a way to earn your salvation, but that's how it plays out. But at the very least, it's a way to maintain your salvation. Now, if you have to work to maintain your salvation, then ultimately what that says is that your salvation is works-based. You can't get around that, because the true gospel is God doing the work. He did the work on the cross, 
And he's doing the work actively through the Holy Spirit in your life to sustain you, to give you the power to believe, to help you get better and better, closer to the image of Christ every day. This is the gospel. We are experiencing it. We're not doing anything. Of course, we have good works, but we have good works because our heart has been changed by God and we want to do those things. Not because we have to or we feel obligated to maintain our salvation because we might lose it. These things lead you into a works-based slavery, which is what all of these religions have in common. Every religion has this in common, whether it's pagan, like Hinduism, or you know, whatever, <laughs> even personal growth, the personal growth route race. I'm very familiar with that. I made a living off of that for quite a while. Everything is a works-based paradigm, and the gospel is unique in history because it can't be counterfeited. It's God doing the work. But Satan will try to counterfeit it and in the process convince you that you need to do some of that work at least. But if you did, even if it's the work to believe, if you believe that out of all the billions of people in history that have not made it, that you somehow managed to believe in God, then what does that mean? That means that you get an enormous amount of glory and credit where a lot of people failed. And that is why this stuff is not true. God doesn't share his glory with anybody. The gospel is about him choosing who he wants to save and revealing himself to that person. That person is changed for life. And as a result, they pursue God because he gave them life. This is the gospel and it comes with assurance of salvation, which you do not have in any of these works-based religions. Mormonism, Catholicism, Jehovah's Witness, Judaism, Islam, all these are works-based religion. And today, of course, we're talking about Islam, but we have wrapped up all of these different things. We found who the second beast was. We looked at the image of the beast. We look at how it's constructing this paradigm, this representation of the first beast. Well, the first beast was a religio-political government. So the second beast is constructing another religio-political government that's going to emulate, represent, look like, remember, associate with the first system that controlled the earth pretty, pretty much for over a thousand years. You think that system's going away? No way. It's coming back, and it's going to come back in full force. Now, thankfully, not for too long, because Christ will come back after the mark of the beast is implemented, and some people will still be left alive. But Ultimately, that system is coming back. So all of that stuff is in the past now, and you're free to go check it out. Again, the playlist is on danceoflife.com, and you can listen to it, or, you know, if you like to, li I have some video stuff in there too, so, you know, very visual, I'm a visual person, so if you like that kind of stuff, then go to the website. If you like to listen, then it's on iTunes and pretty much anywhere there's a podcast. But today, we now are switching gears. We're going to an interesting topic, which is the topic of Islam. Islam is seems like kind of a rogue operator. And the question is, well, you know, Islam is such a large religion. It's massive. It's over a billion people in the world. And so the question is, what is the role of Islam? There has to be some role. There has to be some way that this giant religion fits into the scheme of things, especially if we know the truth. We know the Bible can be trusted. We know the Bible identifies the beast. It identifies the second beast. And so the question is, how do all these things fit together? And that's what we're going to be answering 
at least giving some clarity on today. So, what about Islam? They have over a billion people. They also have end times prophecies as well. They believe in a one-eyed antichrist, which is very reminiscent of what we talked about with the passion of the Christ and the occult version of the uh, worthless shepherd, right? If you remember, we talked about the Council on Foreign Relations logo of the naked one-eyed Messiah, the worthless shepherd in Zechariah 11, the dollar bill with the left eye. If you've never noticed the eye in the pyramid, of course, most people know that by now, but they haven't probably noticed that the eye in that little golden pyramid or whatever it is, is a left eye. It's not the right eye. And so there's this occult thing about the worthless shepherd. And of course, it's the left eye. And the Muslims believe that too. They believe in the Dajjal. And so that's really interesting. They also have a lot of similarities with Catholicism. And we'll see why. Because they were started by the papacy. Islam as a religion was started and manufactured by the papacy to serve its goals. And we'll see how that happened in history. So if that's news to you, then stay with me. But the attitude is very similar. It's a workspace religion. They have a lot of things in common. Muhammad got his revelations from an angel in a cave. Now we know <laughs> that scripture, the Bible, warns against such things. That even if an angel comes and reveals something to you, to, again, test the spirits, to remember that Satan masquerades as an angel of light, all these different things. And, of course, these things are very common with things like Joseph Smith and, you know, paganism always received revelations in caves. These things are very suspect. So it's very interesting, very interesting that this would be part of a religion that's so huge and massive impact. Now, we also know that Israel's part of the, the dialectics. Remember, there's dialectics of problem, reaction, solution to bring everybody back to the mother church. And if you remember from the art of war that we covered in the French Revolution, the sovereign, which is the Pope, his prime duty is to manipulate the divine manipulation of the threads. What threads are we talking about? There's so many threads. You have in the United States the charismatic thread. You have the one world religion thread. You have the Abrahamic family house in the Middle East thread. You have the Green Sunday movement and climate change thread. All these threads are being slowly woven together into a tapestry. And that tapestry will be the woman riding the beast. So we know that Israel's part of those dialectics because they needed a back and forth in the Middle East. And if we know the Pope met with Theodore Herzl, which, who was the founder of Zionism, and then not, not too late after that, you had the whole... World War II and, you know, kick the Jews out into, you know, get their own state and Rothschilds paid for their own state. All these things came together shortly afterward. And lo and behold, in this modern day that we live in, the Jews are building a third temple. And everybody thinks this Bible prophecy being unfolded. But what prophecy? True prophecy or the false prophecy that was engineered in the Counter-Reformation? Again, if you know your history, you see these things as being played out before your very eyes as stage. It's all stage antics. It's not true Bible prophecy. It is a manipulation to make you think that Bible prophecy is being unfolded so that when the ultimate deception comes, you will be fooled. And of course, if you've been with me, hopefully you've learned a lot to where you won't be fooled. But either case, Islam is involved in the Middle East. 
And it's also involved, you know, with Israel. And we know the history of Israel. We know the history of Islam. So what's going on here? We know the papacy is the beast. And the papacy has had its hand dipped in both sides, as usual. So the conclusion is we need to look more into this. There's a lot of interesting things here that should raise an eyebrow. And at the very least, we should look into history and what's going on with all that. So today we're going to look at a couple things. We're going to look at the history of Islam and its possible role in the end times. We're also going to look at how the papacy created Islam. We're going to compare Catholicism and Islam together. We're going to look at Islam as an antichrist power, as defined by the Bible. We're going to look at the pagan influences of Islam and even Catholicism, and also with uh, Mary worship and how that's uniting these two religions. Very interesting. Just like the Charismatics are using the Holy Spirit and spiritual experiences to unite around and avoid uniting around doctrine, the same thing is happening with Catholicism and Islam using Mary. So you'd be surprised to find that out. We'll also look at secret society connections and how these things, again, all there's a shadow government underneath all of these things that is controlling what you see on the outside as separation, variety, you know, difference of opinion. All these things are just illusions. Really, there's one big club in the background, and you and I are not in it, thank God. And last but not least, we'll look at the whole black cube, the Kaaba, and what it actually means, and Mecca and all that kind of stuff. But look, just a quick note before we get started. If you're a Muslim, or you know anybody that is a Muslim, this is absolutely not against Muslims. I really have nothing against Muslim people. Actually, I've worked with them. I have friends. So, in fact, most of the time, those people are very hospitable and nice people, at least in my experience. But at the same time, you are being deceived. You are being deceived. I hope you will indulge me so that you can learn the truth of your history, the history of your beliefs, and <laughs> indulge me in the sense that if you're new to this, because you popped on this episode because you saw Islam, Go back and watch the previous episodes to see what the Bible truly has to say about the end times, about who the beast is, about history, so that you realize where your beliefs come from, because they come from the beast. John calls the woman riding the beast the mother of abominations and harlots, meaning all these rogue belief systems, even though Islam is a billion people, it's, it's a huge religion. It originated because of the beast, the mother of harlots. And so you have to learn your history. History, as we've been told, is a lie. Jesus is the truth. He's the only one not lying to you. And he is also God. And he came to give his life where you could not possibly earn your way into heaven. He came to give his life as a propitiation for your sins because you cannot possibly make up for your sins, and neither can I, and that's why we need a Savior. That's the gospel. And if you accept the gospel, God will give you a new heart and new desires and ensure that he perseveres you so that you have assurance of faith and assurance of salvation on the day, on the last day, when everything happens. So who knows when that's going to be, but ultimately, look, I urge you to indulge me. This is not about... Muslims being bad or anything like that. It's really about learning our history so that we can wake up. So with that said, let's get started. We have quite a lot of things to cover as usual, but there's a lot of good stuff. Um, 
this first couple stuff is about how the papacy created Islam. And I want to give you a few a few couple facts. We'll probably review these facts a little bit later, but you had a woman named Khadija and she married Muhammad. And this this Khadija was a wealthy Catholic woman. I believe she was an older woman, but she was a Catholic in the Middle East. Remember, before Islam, there was just the Roman papacy. Okay, that controlled practically the known world. And you had a lot of people who were in those areas, Arabic, Middle Eastern, that were Catholic. And Khadija, who was a very wealthy woman, was a Catholic, and she married Muhammad. And she was in a convent, like a nun's convent. Her cousin, Waraka, who was also a faithful Catholic, counseled Muhammad. She was one of Muhammad's counselors. Tamim al-Dari, which was one of Muhammad's key advisors, was a Catholic convert. All these people were Catholic. Muhammad was surrounded by Catholics. And Tamim al-Dari obviously also influenced Muslim eschatology and what they believe about the end times. So, again, if you know that the papacy has always had this plan to produce a fleshly, false, golden age with a false Christ even, then it stands to reason that there's a lot of things in Muslim eschatology that would lead people into being ready for such a reality. So keep that in mind. But again, all these people around Muhammad were Catholic. You also had Bahira, who was a Christian monk. Now again, you know, there were different Christian sects, but before, you know, Islam, all there was was the Catholic Church. So Bahira was also Catholic in some sense. He was a Catholic monk. And he acknowledged Muhammad as a true prophet. So Muhammad, from the beginning, was surrounded by agents of the beast. So we can look at a piece from the Oxford Illustrated History of Christianity. And again, if you're listening to this, all the sources will be in the description, but you can check these out. This is on um, page 165. And you can look in the Oxford Illustrated History of Christianity. The recognition of the prophet Muhammad by the Christian Anchorite Bahira symbolizes in Islamic tradition the primacy of Muhammad's mission over that of Christ. But medieval Christian critics of Islam uh, identified Bahira as the heterodox source from which Muhammad's supposedly heretical teachings were derived. So Bahira was this very deceived person, as you'll probably find out soon enough. But he there's this picture of Muhammad and he's got this flame over his head and Bahira is just basically bowing down to him and recognizing him as a as a prophet. And so this, all these things put together that I just relate to you, tie Muhammad in the beginning of Islam to the Catholic Church. Muhammad was propped up by Catholics. He was funded by Catholics. He was counseled by Catholics. And he was moved into a position in order to create a religion on purpose because it had a very fitting purpose for the beast. Now, that purpose wasn't achieved at the time because God, as usual, uses empires to judge previous empires. We'll talk about these things when we talk about the trumpets and, you know, the various judgments that happen over people. But Islam got out of control. And that's why the Crusades happened. We'll read about that. But Islam got out of control. The papacy was not able to achieve their purpose through Islam Nevertheless, now towards the end of the age, the wound is healing. So that's something to keep in mind. 
Mother of Harlots is definitely an accurate name. The Catholic Church created and supported basically every every crazy thing in the world, right? Communism, we saw that, how that happened. All the crazy, charismatic, hyper-charismatic movements of today, New Age Christianity, progressive, you know, Christianity, New Thought, Islam even, everything. The Catholic Church has its fingerprint on it, which is really fascinating. But this, this next... Um, article here I want to look at is Bahira. It's about Bahira's step monk. And I want to just read a little bit something about it. The story of Muhammad's encounter with Bahira occurs in the works of the early Muslim historians, Ibn Hisham, Ibn Said al-Baghdadi, and Muhammad Ibn Jarir al-Tabari. Probably butchered those names, but here we go. Whose, ver- whose versions differ in some details. The young Muhammad, then either 9 or 12 years old, met Bahira in Syria while traveling with a Meccan caravan, accompanying his uncle Ab- Abu Talib ibn Abd al-Muttalib. When the caravan passed by his cell, the monk invited the merchants to a feast. They accepted his invitation, leaving the boy to guard the camel. Bahira, however, insisted that everyone in the caravan should come to him. Then a miraculous occurrence indicated to the monk that Muhammad become a prophet. So again, you have to wonder what kind of miraculous occurrence. If you remember Constantine and his vision to put that Chiro symbol on the on the shields, you know, you really wonder where these visions come from. When he sat under a tree, its branches moved to shade him. The movement of a cloud kept shadowing Muhammad regardless of the time of the day, and it drew Bahira's attention. The monk revealed his visions of Muhammad of Muhammad's future to the boy uh, to the boy's uncle, warning him to persevere the, to preserve the child from the Jews or from the Byzantines. These are different versions of the story. Both versions write that Bahira found the announcement of the coming of Muhammad in the original unadulterated gospels, which he possessed. So apparently Bahira had some, you know, some of the true gospels. He had some of the true gospels. And these true gospels which who knows what they were, supposedly prophesied of this prophet that would come. A prophet that not only would be a prophet several hundred years after Christ, where we have the full revelation of scripture, because all the scriptures testified about Christ, but this prophet would even be even more important than Jesus. So do you see what spirit was guiding this? And hopefully, again, if you're Muslim, you will indulge me to just watch this whole episode, listen to it. See where your history comes from, where these beliefs come from. What does history have to say? What does it truly have to say? Not your leaders, because just like Catholicism, just like any other religious institution, the leaders of that institution are invested in keeping you in the institution. So this goes for both Catholics and and Muslims. But basically, you know, what what do Muslims believe, right? So ultimately, let's, let's look at what is the general beliefs of Islam? And if that was truly, if Bahira was right, and this Muhammad was supposed to be a prophet, and he was supposed to be giving the true Gospels, you have to remember, there was, there was a lot of Gnostic sects around that time in Christianity. There was a lot of Gnosticism, the hunt for secret knowledge, occultism, that had invaded the church. This was several hundred years after Jesus, several hundred years after the Gospels were written. And so you have to wonder, what true Gospels are we talking about? But if we indulge that, <clears throat> we say, okay, the true Gospels. Well, what do Muslims believe? Well, the Muslims believe 
that Jesus wasn't crucified. They deny the Trinity. They deny the divinity of Jesus, the pre-existence of Jesus, even though he claimed to be God multiple times and he made himself equal to God. And, you know, ultimately all these things are Antichrist. According to John, the apostle, if you deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one that came from God, the one that was preexistent, the one that is the only one to be saved, you are Antichrist, not the Antichrist, because there's not just one, it's spirit of Antichrist. So the spirit of Antichrist is what was guiding Muhammad and Bahira to see these things and to basically shape history with another false religion, because Catholicism is a false religion, and so is Islam, and so are really any religions, because Christ didn't come to leave a religion. He came to leave, to leave a way of life and a relationship. That's so important. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship. And any attempt to religify it, to institutionalize it, has always led to a counterfeit. But Islamic eschatology is also important. So let's take a look, because this is a very interesting topic. This is from Wikipedia, Signs of the End Times. So what are the signs of the end times according to Islamic eschatology? Senseless immorality would prevail, the prevalent, the prevalent of tyrants, alcohol, usury, satanic music, fornication, homosexuality, disobedience by wives, murders, lying, cheating, disinterest, and ignorance of religion. That's an interesting little sentence there. So religion, people don't want religion anymore. Unnatural phenomenons would occur, the rise of frequent sudden deaths, excessive lightning, destruction, destructive rainfall, terrible drought, a huge cloud of smoke, the opening up of huge cracks in the earth, the sun rising in the west, the breeze that takes the, the souls of the faithful, the appearance of a dark satanic evil such as the Antichrist. Now notice, again, this is a personal Antichrist rather than an Antichrist system which is very interesting. Gog and Magog, the arrival of messianic saviors such as the Mahdi and Jesus. So this, wait a minute, there's two? Who along with divine intervention will restore justice. Okay, so there's obviously signs. Some of them overlap with the Bible and some of them are very questionable. Savior and evil-doing figures that appear in the major signs include the Dajjal. So Dajjal is the the blind in one eye and will deceive starving masses. This is the one-eyed antichrist that they believe in. Especially the Jews will be deceived by performing miracles. He will raise an army that will kill and conquer and corner his enemies, the Mahdi, and corner his nemesis, the Mahdi, along with a small army of Muslim fighters in Jerusalem. Jesus, will, Jesus at this point will descend from heaven just in time to kill and defeat his army. Pay attention to this and, and kind of just slot it in the back of your mind because we're going to talk about it. The Mahdi... <clears throat> the rightly guided one, is a messianic figure descended from Muhammad, of course, through Ali, who, with the help of Jesus, will defeat the Dajjal. So Jesus is just kind of like a supporting figure. Reestablish Islamic law, rid the world of bid'ah or religious innovation, and fill it with justice. So one world religion is coming. Sunni and Shia disagree on the details, such as whether he is currently alive, will kill the Dajjal himself, what he looks like, and what his exact ancestry is. So they don't know who the Mahdi is just yet. Jesus will make a second coming, descending to earth, but unlike in Christianity, it will be to assist the Mahdi by killing the Dajjal. Break, quote, breaking the cross, killing the pigs, 
and abolishing the jizya tax. He'll put an end to Christian's misconceptions about his being the son of God and there being no need to follow dietary laws. Really? So he's going to put an end to the gospel? It's not what the Bible believes. Jesus and the Mahdi will then rule the earth in perfect justice for a time before judgment day. So you have two rulers instead of one. Shia believe it is the Mahdi who will kill the Dajjal. Others believe the Mahdi is not a distinct person, but just the title given to Jesus. That's also interesting. Gog and Magog, Arabic, are mentioned in the Quran as doing great mischief on earth and being suppressed by a figure called Dul Quranun, the two-horned one. Okay, that's interesting. Who builds a wall to contain their mischief, warning their local victims that when the time comes, Allah will remove the barrier. Non-Quranic Islamic apocalyptic literature describes Gog and Magog as a subhuman pestilence who are released from thousands of years of imprisonment to do much killing pillaging and devouring of vast resources until being wiped out after God commands an insect or worm to burrow into their necks and kill them. So you have some sort of zombie apocalypse. A lot of interesting stuff in this. I mean, really, I find it very interesting because some of it is relating to what Christ said as far as signs in the sky and, you know, signs of the times. But some of it is actually also interesting because it relates to all these dialectics that we see that the papacy created through its false reading of the books of Revelation and Daniel. So again, remember, the papacy had to shift attention off of itself during the Reformation. We didn't want people to identify the papacy as the the beast, right? The woman riding the beast. So you had to create this whole false eschatology that was very physically oriented with a singular person as the Antichrist, with you know, physical temple and all these kind of things, right? And so ultimately, what does this mean? Well, if we know that the papacy is behind these dialectics, and we know that the third temple, I have a whole episode on this, episode six, where, you know, put this in context, where if if the third temple and this Yannicka guy that's doing miracles right now, he's like a Torah scholar, and he's just, everybody's possibly saying that he's going to be revealed as the Messiah maybe this year in 2023, but there's a lot of Temple Mount craziness. All these things, if you understand where their origin comes from, and if you also understand the papacy was behind Islam, there's there's something going on between Israel and Islam and, and, and the tension that is happening in the Middle East to bring about a conflict, a conflict to which would be ideal time for a false appearing of a false Christ. Don't you think? Don't you think? Don't you see how all of this is playing out even though it's totally different religions, seemingly different, all these threads are being woven into one. The The fleshly way of reading the Bible says that Jesus will return and usher in a golden age. The Muslims believe that there's a false Christ, that the Jaw who's going to deceive the Jews, and then Jesus is going to return, who's possibly the Mahdi. They, you know, they're not agreed on that, and destroy this Antichrist and basically usher in a golden age where there's going to be a one-world religion. The Talmud believes there's going to be a one-world religion as well. And they're going to be the ones that are ruling, and the Goyim and Gentiles will be their servants. So everybody has kind of a similar physical, fleshly eschatology. Now, what were to happen if there was a conflict being set, and the third temple gets finished, which it probably will, and all these things come to pass, and Satan masquerades as the Mahdi, or Jesus, all in one, and says, listen, all these things that you've called me throughout time, 
Maitreya, which is the new age God, you know, the Hindus and Indians and new age people all believe in Maitreya. Uh, you know, the Mahdi, a false Jesus that the Christians, the, the dispensationalist Christians are looking for. The Messiah for the Jews. He's the one that actually, you know, all these things are coming and being woven into one thread. It's really fascinating. It's really, it's really quite fascinating. Again, if you saw the episode on the temple, the third temple, which is episode six, I believe, I go into detail a lot about all that stuff. But why, the question is this, why was Islam created? Why was it created in the first place? If Muhammad was surrounded by Catholics and advised by Catholics, propped up by Catholics, why was it created? What was the purpose? Well, the first and in purpose on my mind is to take Jerusalem for the Pope with a large army. Jerusalem has a fascinating history and a very important role in creating their false prophecy. It's also politically and, and geographically in a very important position. So the Pope wanted Jerusalem for himself, right? Ultimately, remember, the, the devil wants whatever God has. God said that he put his name in Jerusalem. And of course, now after Jesus, the fullness of revelation is that we do not need geography for our faith. We can be anywhere and have a relationship with God. But nevertheless, it has that history. And so, of course, the papacy wanted to put their name in Jerusalem, and that never happened because Islam got out of control. But they created Islam as a way to possibly control this futurist prophecy to fulfill their own false prophecy and bring about the one world order where people will be deceived into taking the mark of the beast and, and worshiping who they think is Jesus. It's possible. And also to prevent true Christianity from spreading. There was a lot of true Christians. Remember, Paul evangelized to all of the countries that are now Muslim. <laughs> but in the beginning, they were true Christians. Northern Africa, the Middle East, Syria, Turkey, all these places were where all the Christians were. But that was a real problem for the papacy with its Roman system. And so they needed an army to subdue and control these people. And so they created one through Muhammad that they could control. Remember, the Bible says that the, the little horn power controls people without having his own army. And it's very true. I mean, the papacy is this tiny little state, Vatican state, and yet it controls the entire world. It's very fascinating. But there's a couple couple really good resources on why the possibility of creating Islam by the papacy happened. And this is this is an article. It's called The Plain and Simple Hidden Truth About Islam. We're going to read quite a lot from this article. It's a great article. It's on LinkedIn. It's by a man named Ernesto Giro. He's a blogger. He's an orator of some kind. But it's a very well-researched article. There's a lot of good things in here. And I want to read it because there's there's just so much to talk about. But again, if you know your history, then you know it's just obvious. But most people don't. And so I want to share this with you. How and why the Roman Catholics created the religion of Islam. This information came from Alberto Rivera, former Jesuit priest after his conversion to Protestant Christianity. It is excerpted from The Prophet, published by Chick Publications, P.O. Box 662, Chino, California, 91708. Since its publication, after several unsuccessful attempts on his life, he died suddenly from food poisoning. 
His testimony should not be silenced. Dr. Rivera speaks to us still, quote, What I'm going to tell you is what I learned in secret briefings in the Vatican when I was just a Jesuit priest, under oath and induction. A Jesuit cardinal named Augustine Bea showed us how desperately the Roman Catholics wanted Jerusalem at the end of the third century. Because of its religious history and its strategic location, the holy city was considered a priceless treasure. A scheme had to be developed to make Jerusalem a Roman Catholic city. The great untapped source of manpower that could do this job was the children of Ishmael. If you remember, Abraham had two sons. Ishmael was the first. And that led to the Arab population. The poor Arabs fell victim to one of the cleverest plans ever devised by the powers of darkness. Early Christians went everywhere with the gospel, setting up small churches, but they met heavy opposition. Both the Jews and the Roman government persecuted the believers in Christ to stop their spread. But the Jews rebelled against Rome, and in AD 70, Roman armies under General Titus smashed Jerusalem and destroyed the great Jewish temple, which was the heart of Jewish worship, in fulfillment of Matthew 24. On this holy place today where the temple once stood, the Dome of the Rock Mosque stands as Islam's second most holy place. Sweeping changes were in the wind. Corruption, apathy, greed, cruelty, perversion, rebellion were eating at the Roman Empire, and it was ready to collapse. The persecution against Christians was useless as they continued to lay down their lives for the gospel of Christ. Now, really quick break. Why did they do that? Because they had assurance of salvation, not because they believed they needed to work to maintain their salvation. They knew that Christ would maintain them and give them the crown of life. But moving on. The only way Satan could stop this thrust was to create a counterfeit Christian religion to destroy the work of God. And we looked at that over the last 10 episodes, so go check it out. The solution was in Rome. Their religion had come from ancient Babylon, and all it needed was a facelift. This didn't happen overnight, but began in the writings of the early church fathers. It was through their writings that a new religion would take shape. The statue of Jupiter in Rome was eventually called St. Peter, and the statue of Venus was changed to the Virgin Mary. The site chosen for its headquarters was on the one of the seven hills called Vaticanus, the place of the divine serpent where the satanic temple of Janus stood. Now, there's some people that question this translation, just so I'm fair. Uh, I looked into this Vaticanus, the, the hill, the divine, the divine serpent. This is questionable. However, it is interesting because there were a lot of pagan temples as well. And you'll see throughout this episode that there are a lot of pagan temples where these buildings of cathedrals and mosques are built. They're built on pagan sites. So anyway, moving on. The great counterfeit religion was Roman Catholicism called Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. She was raised up to block the gospel, slaughter the believers in Christ, establish religions, of course, she's mother of harlots, create wars and make the nations drunk with the wine of her fornication, as we will see. Three major religions have one thing in common. Each has a holy place where they look for guidance. Roman Catholics look to the Vatican. The Jews look to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. And the Muslims uh, look to Mecca as their holy city. All these things have something in common. Isn't that interesting? Each group believes that they they receive certain types of blessings for the rest of their lives for visiting their holy place. This is a pagan practice. In the beginning, Arab visitors would bring gifts to the house of God, and the keepers of the Kaaba were gracious to all who came. Some brought their idols, and not wanting to offend these people, their idols were placed inside the sanctuary. It is said that the Jews looked upon the Kaaba as an outlying tabernacle of the Lord, 
with veneration until it became polluted with idols. In a tribal contention over a well, Zamzam, the treasure of the Kaaba and the offerings that the pilgrims had given were dumped down the well and it was filled with sand. It disappeared. Many years later, Abd al-Mutalib was given visions telling him where to find the well and its treasure. He became the hero of Mecca and he was destined to become the grandfather of Muhammad. Before this time, Augustine became the Bishop of North Africa and was effective in winning Arabs to Roman Catholicism, including whole tribes. Again, remember, everybody in that area became Catholic. It was among these Arab converts to Catholicism that the concept of looking for an Arab prophet developed. Muhammad's father died from illness and the sons born to great Arab families in places like Mecca were sent into the desert to be suckled and weaned and spent some of their childhood with Bedouin tribes for training and to avoid the plagues in the cities. After his mother and grandfather also died, Muhammad was with his uncle when a Roman Catholic monk learned of his identity and said, Take your brother's son back to his country and guard him against the Jews, for by God, if they see him and know of him that which I know, they will construe evil against him. Great things are in store for this brother's sons of yours. The Roman Catholic monk had fanned the flames of future Jewish persecutions at the hands of the followers of Muhammad. So he basically played into the narrative. I think this is Bahira that we're talking about now. That monk that basically recognized Muhammad. The Vatican desperately wanted Jerusalem because of its religious significance, but was blocked by the Jews. Another problem was the true Christians in North Africa who preached the gospel. Roman Catholicism was growing in power, but would not tolerate opposition. Remember, when Constantine united the church and state, which we looked at, a lot of true Christians were persecuted for celebrating the Sabbath, for you know doing anything other than what the Roman religion said. Moving on, somehow the Vatican had to create a weapon to eliminate both the Jews and the true Christian believers who refused to accept Roman Catholicism. Looking to North Africa, they saw the multitudes of Arabs as a source of manpower to do their dirty work. Now look, this is not against Arabic people or Muslims, but you have to understand this is the truth. This is how they see everybody as a piece of meat to do their will. Some Arabs had become Roman Catholic, and could be used in reporting information to the leaders in Rome. Others were used in an underground spy network to carry out Rome's master plan to control the great multitudes of Arabs who rejected Catholicism. When St. Augustine appeared on the scene, he knew what he was doing, what was going on. His monasteries served as bases to seek out and destroy Bible manuscripts owned by true Christians. The Vatican wanted to create a Messiah for the Arabs, someone they could raise up as a great leader, a man with charisma whom they could train, and eventually unite all the non-Catholic Arabs behind him, creating a mighty army that would ultimately capture Jerusalem for the Pope. In the Vatican briefing, Cardinal Bea told us this story. Quote, a wealthy Arabian lady who was a faithful follower of the Pope played a tremendous part in his drama, in this drama. She was a widow named Khadija. She gave her wealth to the church and retired to a convent as a nun but was given an assignment. She was to find a brilliant young man who could be used by the Vatican to create a new religion and become the Messiah for the children of Ishmael. Khadija had a cousin named Waraka, who was also a very faithful Roman Catholic, and the Vatican placed him in a critical role as, as Muhammad's uh, advisor. He had a tremendous influence on Muhammad. Teachers were sent to young Muhammad, and he had intensive training. Muhammad studied the works of St. Augustine, which prepared him for his great calling. And if you remember, St. Augustine was 
I mean, saint, just Augustine, but Augustine was all about the church as a worldly kingdom and a church-state union. So very pro-papacy. The Vatican and ha- the Vatican had Catholic Arabs across North Africa spread the story of a great one who was about to rise up among the people and to be chosen by their God. While Muhammad was being prepared, he was told that his enemies were the Jews and that only true Christians were Roman Catholic. He was taught that others calling themselves Christians were actually wicked imposters and should be destroyed. Many Muslims believe this to this day. Muhammad began receiving divine revelations and his wife's Catholic cousin, Waraka, helped interpret them. Again, he's surrounded by Catholics and being guided by a false spirit. From this came the Quran. In the fifth year of Muhammad's mission, persecution came against his followers because they refused to worship the idols in the Kaaba. This is why Salman Rushdie condemned the Quran in his satanic verses, for he knew the truth behind this so-called sacred book of Islam. Muhammad instructed some of them to flee to Abysnia, where Negus, the Roman Catholic king, accepted them because Muhammad's views on the Virgin Mary were just so close to Roman Catholic doctrine. We're going to talk a lot about this today, too. This is the angle that will be used. These Muslims received protection from the Catholic kings because of Muhammad's revelations. Very interesting history. Muhammad later conquered Mecca and the Kaaba was cleared of idols. History proves that before Islam came into existence, the Sabaeans in Arabia worshipped the moon goddess Allah. Now he says God is here, but Allah was a moon god, I believe, a masculine, but either way. Married to the sun god, there was a lot of pagan sun-moon worship. They gave birth to three goddesses who were worshipped throughout the Arab world as the daughters of Allah. An idol elevated at Hazor in Palestine in the 1950s shows Allah sitting on a throne with the crescent moon on his or her chest. Muhammad claimed he had a vision from Allah and was told, you are the messenger of Allah. This being, or this began his career as a prophet. He received many messages. By the time Muhammad died, the religion of Islam was exploding. The nomadic Arab tribes were joining forces in the name of Allah and his prophet Muhammad. Some of Muhammad's writings were placed in the Quran. Others were never published. They are now in the hands of high-ranking holy men, ayatollahs, in the Islamic faith. When Cardinal Baez shared with us in the Vatican, he said, These writings are guarded because they contain information that links the Vatican to the creation of Islam. Both sides have so much information on each other that if exposed, it could create such a scandal that it would be a disaster for both religions. This is, you know, and again, this, if you know anything about secret societies and how everybody in them goes through these initiation situations where they have blackmail on you. And so, you know, if you do anything, then you're screwed, basically. This is nothing new. I mean, it really isn't. Moving on. In their holy book, the Quran, Christ is regarded as only a prophet. If the, if the Pope was his representative on earth, then he must also be a prophet of God. This caused the followers of Muhammad to fear and respect the Pope as another holy man. So you have Muhammad, you know, very high regard for the papacy. The Pope moved quickly and issued bulls granting the Arab generals permission to invade and conquer the nations of North Africa. The Vatican helped to finance the building of these massive Islamic armies in exchange for three favors. The first is eliminate the Jews and Christians, which are true believers, which they called infidels. The second is protect the Augustinian monks and Roman Catholics. And the third is conquer Jerusalem for the Pope and the Vatican. As time went by, the power of Islam became tremendous. Jews and the true Christians were slaughtered, and Jerusalem fell into their hands. 
Roman Catholics were never attacked, nor were there shrines during this time. But when the Pope asked for Jerusalem, he was surprised at their denial. The Arab generals had such military success that they could not be intimidated by the Pope. Nothing could stand in the way of their own plan. Under Waraka's direction, Muhammad wrote that Abraham offered Ishmael as a sacrifice. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that Isaac was a sacrifice, but Muhammad removed Isaac's name and inserted Ishmael's name. As a result of this, in Muhammad's vision, the faithful Muslims built a mosque, the Dome of the Rock, in Ishmael's honor on the site of the Jewish temple that was destroyed in 70 AD. This made Jerusalem the second most holy place in Islamic faith. Isn't that funny how history happens? Now everything's tied up in Jerusalem. How could they give such a sacred shrine to the Pope without causing a revolt? The Pope realized what they had created was out of their control when he heard that they were calling His Holiness an infidel. The Muslim generals were determined to conquer the world for Allah, and now they turned toward Europe. Islamic ambassadors approached the Pope and asked for papal bulls to give them permission to invade European countries. The Vatican was outraged. War was inevitable. Temporal power and control of the world was considered the basic right of the Pope. He wouldn't dare think of sharing it with those whom he considered heathens. The Pope raised up his armies and called them crusades to hold back the children of Ishmael from grabbing Catholic Europe. The crusades lasted centuries and Jerusalem slipped out of the Pope's hands. Gosh, I love history. It's just so fascinating. Turkey fell and Spain and Portugal were invaded by Islamic forces. In Portugal, they called the mountain village Fatima in honor of Muhammad's daughter, never dreaming it would one day become world famous. Also another interesting fact. Years later, when the Muslim armies were poised on the islands of Sardinia and Corsica to invade Italy, there was a serious problem. The Islamic generals realized they were too far extended. It was time for peace talks. One of the negotiators was St. Francis of Assisi. Very interesting figure as well. Here's the Pope with the imam, nice and diplomatic. And again, (laughs) this is, if you know the occult, look, black and white. The Pope is always wearing white. And the imam, what's what's he wearing? He's wearing black. But he also has a white hat, and so does the Pope. They both have common goals. I mean, all these things, look, if you understand these are actually occult situations and occult secret societies, you know, symbolism is their downfall in this, so to speak, right? Moving on. As a result, the Muslims were allowed to occupy Turkey in a Christian world, and the Catholics were allowed to occupy Lebanon in the Arab world. It was also agreed that the Muslims would build mosques in Catholic countries without interference, as long as Roman Catholicism could flourish in Arab countries. Cardinal Bea told us in Vatican briefings that both the Muslims and the Roman Catholics agreed to block and destroy the efforts of their common enemy, Bible-believing Christian missionaries. Through these concordance, Satan blocked the children of Ishmael from the knowledge of Scripture and the truth. And this is the most important part of today. If you get anything out of today, it's that if you're Muslim or if you know anybody who's Muslim, to realize you've been deceived and that the gospel is the truth. A light control was kept on Muslims from the Ayatollah down through the Islamic priests, nuns, and monks. The Vatican also engineered a campaign of hatred between Muslim Arabs and the Jews. Of course, remember, the Zionists met with the Pope, and the state of Israel was created as a result, creating even more conflict, which would result into a one-world peace situation. So 
let's take a quick break. Gosh, it's so involved. There's so much to talk about. But look, it's all just fascinating. Again, if you understand the divine manipulation of the threads, art of war, the sovereign, they created Islam. It got out of control. Then they went back to the Jews. Theodore Herzl was the, the father of Zionism, met with the Pope. What do you think that was about? And later, a couple decades later, you have a full-blown state that's now in opposition to the Middle Eastern Arab control of Jerusalem. Do you see what's going on? That they created Islam in order to use them, but then they got out of control. Oh, we need something to counter that. So now there's Zionism and now there's a third temple being built and there's conflict in Israel. It's all part of these same dialectic games. And of course, now that there's these dialectic games, who can come in and be the savior and the peacemaker? Pontifex Maximus, the Pope, the great bridge builder. So moving on. The Islamic community looks on the Bible-believing missionary as a devil who brings poison to the children of Allah. This explains years of ministry in those countries with little results. The next plan was to control Islam. In 1910, Portugal was going socialistic. <laughs> Remember, who started communism? The Jesuits. Red flags were appearing, and the Catholic Church was facing a major problem. Increasing numbers were against the church. Of course, this is just a dialectic. The Jesuits wanted Russia involved, and the location of this vision at Fatima could play a key part in pulling Islam to the mother church. In 1917, the Virgin appeared in Fatima. The Mother of God was a smashing success, playing to overflow crowds. As a result, the socialists of Portugal suffered a major defeat. Did you know that Fatima appearing in Portugal when communism was on the rise was just another dialectic? Again, communism, secularism, left versus Christian nationalism, institutionalized religion, right. Left versus right. Ping pong people back and forth. And ultimately, it's going to be full right, woman riding the beast. Moving on. Roman Catholics worldwide began, worldwide began praying for the conversion of Russia. And the Jesuits invented the novenas to Fatima, which they could perform throughout North Africa, spreading good public relations to the Muslim world. The Arabs thought they were honoring the daughter of Muhammad, which is what the Jesuits wanted them to believe. For more info on the dirty deeds of the Jesuits, okay, there's some other things here. As a result of the vision of Fatima, Pope Pius XII ordered his Nazi army to crush Russia and the Orthodox religion and make Russia Roman Catholic. A few years later, after he lost World War II, Pope Pius XII startled the world with his phony dancing sun vision to keep Fatima in the news. It was great religious showbiz and the world swallowed it. Not surprisingly, Pope Pius was the only one to see his vision. As a result, a group of followers has grown into a blue army worldwide, totaling millions of faithful Roman Catholics ready to die for the Blessed Virgin. These are the Blue Berets of the UN today. The UN is definitely connected to the beast. Everything is connected to the beast. You have to realize that. But we haven't seen anything yet. The Jesuits have their Virgin Mary scheduled to appear four or five times in China, Russia, and major appearances in the U.S. Now, we'll see. We'll see if this will be part of these false signs and wonders and unifying the world into one religion. See what happens. But now you know, what has this got to do with Islam? Note Bishop Sheen's statement. Our Lady's appearance at Fatima marked the turning point in history of the world's 350 million Muslims. After the death of his daughter, Muhammad wrote that she is the most holy of all women in paradise, next to Mary. Keep all this in mind. He believed that the Virgin Mary chose to be known as Our Lady of Fatima 
as a sign and pledge that the Muslims who believe in Christ's virgin birth will come to believe in his divinity. Very, very important. Bishop Sheen pointed out that the pilgrim virgin statues of Our Lady of Fatima were enthusiastically received by Muslims in Africa, India, and elsewhere, and that many Muslims are now coming into the Roman Catholic Church. You don't say. You don't say. Look at this picture here with a woman wearing a mask. The Sharia, the Sharia law of Islam being enforced the whole world today. The Jesuits created the pandemic in the lab and have enforced through their cohorts in Washington like Anthony Fauci and Tedros and the WHO, the mandatory use of masks upon the world is part of the pact with Islamic leaders to enforce Sharia law upon all non-Muslims worldwide. Now, of course, some of this stuff, you know, look, and they say that there's a deal that they're going to behead Christians. It's possible. <laughs> I don't know how valid that is, but it's certainly possible. We know that the masks were BS and ultimately, um, you know, that, that it's just a tool for mind control to get you to obey, to get you to live in fear. But moving on, haven't you noticed how the similarities are so evident? Islamic women have to wear a black and dark raiment and covering from head to toe, just like Catholic nuns do. Do you ever realize that? Most of the so-called mosques or places of worship in Islam are designed just like Roman Catholic cathedrals and churches. Also, both religions do ritualistic pilgrimages, and Islam has their own main holiday, Ramadan, while Catholics have Easter or Holy Week. There again is the Ayatollah with the Pope. The Ayatollah is in black. What's the Pope in? White. Again, people, you have to realize every time people meet with the Pope, he is always in white. You will never, ever, ever see the Pope in black. He's always in white. The people meeting him with him are in black. Why is that? Dark to light. The dark points to the light. They are point, It's all part of the dialectic. He is the center. This is what it's all about. It's fascinating, really. I mean, it's just, it's just fascinating. So anyway, there's, there's more stuff here. This is a great article, but what, what's the point here? What is the point? The point is that <laughs> after Muhammad's death, Islam captured Jerusalem for themselves. They betrayed the Vatican and they went out of control. So Islam was created for a political purpose by the beast. The beast that John saw, the beast that Daniel saw, the beast that ruled for thousands of years, basically. And Revelation 9, which we haven't covered yet, we haven't talked about the trumpets, the sixth trumpet, predicted the rise of the Ottoman Empire. It predicted the rise of all these things, the Crusades, basically the judgment on the papacy. Islam going out of control was God's way of judging the papacy. Just like he used all the empires previously of judging one another. He used Persia to judge Babylon. Remember the statue, the golden statue, or the, the multi-metal statue that Daniel had a vision of for Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2. He used the Persians to judge the Babylonians. He used the Greeks to judge the Persians. He used the Romans to judge the Greeks. And of course, Rome was judged by the barbarians. But then the papacy came up, and the papacy was judged by Islam. And of course, Islam was judged eventually too. But <laughs> all these things are just part of history. It's a, it's a common pattern. So the judgment on the beast will all come to a head when they fulfill this prophecy of a one-world religion. That's when Christ is going to come, and he's going to deliver judgment on everybody. 
So if we are not in Christ, if you don't have a relationship with the true living God, Jesus Christ, the gospel, Muhammad can't save you on that day. Muhammad is dead. He will be resurrected. He will be thrown into the lake of fire because he was a false prophet. He was a false teacher. He didn't believe the gospel. And he was manipulated by the beast. He was guided by demons. All the things that he taught and believed in were to lead people astray from the gospel and ultimately serve the beast. So let's look at comparisons between Catholicism and Islam because that was an interesting point uh, from the previous article and I think it's worth exploring. This is the Umayyad Mosque, Wikipedia. Let's read a little bit about it. The Umayyad Mosque also known as the Great Mosque of Damascus, located in the old city of Damascus, the capital of Syria, is one of the largest and oldest mosques in the world. Its religious importance stems from the eschatological reports concerning the mosque and the historic events associated with it. Christian and Muslim tradition alike consider it the burial place of John the Baptist's head, a tradition originating in the 6th century. So this mosque is created around a dead body relic. Okay, so keep that in mind, because Catholics love their dead body relics. It's a death cult, man. you got to get out of the death cult. The site has been used as a house of worship since the Iron Age, when the Arameans built on it a temple dedicated to their god of rain, Hadad. Isn't that interesting? Under Roman rule, beginning in 64 AD, it was converted into the center of the imperial cult of Jupiter, the Roman god of rain, becoming one of the largest temples in Syria. When the empire in Syria transitioned to Christian Byzantine rule, church and state, Emperor Theodosius transformed it into a cathedral and the seat of the second highest ranking bishop in the patriarchate. So this was originally a pagan temple. Do you see how, do you see how this works? This was a pagan temple. It was redone. Why do people keep... Now, here's, here's a very important understanding of this, because there's going to be a lot of this kind of stuff, but I want you to understand the, the thing behind it all. If, let's say an, an empire comes along, the, the Romans come along and, you know, they destroy this temple or whatever, they kick the people out who they were conquering. Why would they use the same location? Right? I mean, if you have your own religion, like, okay, we don't need this place. This is, if anything, it's like blasphemous, right, to that religion. Why do you need to use the same place? It's ultimately because these people are a cult and they believe that these places have spiritual energy and value and portals maybe even or whatever. They they have some sort of quality to them. That's why they get repurposed and not, you know, just destroyed. So ultimately, these pagan temples have continued in rites of succession through various pagan tribes, the Romans, And then when Roman Catholicism took over and basically became the church and state union that it was, it turned into a cathedral. And then it turned into a mosque. So isn't that interesting? Isn't, I mean, that's just fascinating to me that, again, similarities, it's all one system. Islam and Catholicism, as you will see, are just two sides of the same coin, which is just a fascinating, fascinating idea. It really is. Um... We'll look at some other things, but just a quick break before we talk about some other similarities. I mean, 
both religions have pilgrimages. I want to bring a couple of things to your attention. Both religions have pilgrimages, and the idea of a pilgrim, uh, pilgrimage going to some place where you're basically going to a sacred temple or a sacred site, these things are pagan. People used to go to the high places. If you remember in the Bible, throughout the Bible, it talks about all these pagans going to high places to make sacrifices, to pilgrimage there. This was forbid by God. The, the idea of having geography as part of your worship was utterly destroyed by Jesus' death on the cross. The whole point is a decentralized system where we have a relationship with God instantly, anywhere, without the limits of geography. But pagan idea says that, well, there are certain places that are ritualistically more important. If you step into the temple where sacrifices are made, remember, temples are sacrifices. These are all temples. A cathedral is a temple because a mass is a sacrifice. See how this works? And it's built on pagan temples. There's something going on here. And what's going on is that ultimately this is a pagan system. You don't need geography. And of course, we talked about this in the Israel in the Third Temple episode, episode six, where the true temple is the temple that Christ built. It's the church. It's the body of Christ. It's the kingdom. All these words are synonymous. It's the Lord's table. It's a system that is decentralized and invisible. That's the point. It's indestructible. It's in people's hearts. And a lot of people stumble over that because they're looking with fleshly eyes for fleshly things, worldly things. You got to see a physical temple. You got to see a big physical church. But these things are snares because God is spirit. He's invisible. Of course, he made himself known through Jesus Christ. But it's not about having a special building that you go to. Now, another thing that I want to draw your attention to is that Islam, both Islam and Catholicism, they use this duality of the moon and the sun. Islam obviously has the half moon and star. It also has the crescent moon. And we know Catholics use the sun a lot, sun discs around the head of the saints. If you remember, again, saints are people who are living, not who are dead. They've inver- We covered all this stuff in a Mystery Babylon episode. Very in-depth, so go check that out. But look, Catholicism uses sun worship and sun moon you know, worship. I mean, look at the monstrance is the best example. The Eucharist, where supposedly you're sacrificing Christ and, and bringing him into the flesh where he's a sacrifice and you're eating that flesh. And what is the monstrance that holds the Eucharist? It's a sun-moon situation. We know Mary sometimes appears in Catholic propaganda with a moon under her feet, and she's got clothed with the sun. First off, that's a misinterpretation of Revelation uh, 12, I believe. And we'll get into that. But the point is this. There's a lot of sun-moon imagery in Catholicism and in Islam. Many ways that Islam is, you know, the lunar, right? So there's a lot of ways that Islam is lunar because it's associated to Allah when Allah was the moon god. And of course, Catholics are the sun side. Again, remember, dark and light. Catholics are solar. Islam is lunar in many ways, dark and light. They all point to each other. They're a duality. And that duality is integrating. It's coming back into one system. So the question is, what does the sun-moon represent? If you know the occult, you'll know that it's a fertility slash, you know, good and evil, being the master of both, being like God type of thing. Roman Alexandria were the seat of the occult in the ancient world. Of course, we know Alexandria, which was in Egypt, burned down. 
And Rome became basically the center. Rome became the center of the occult. Peter called Rome Babylon in one of his letters. If you remember that from a previous episode. Now, why did he call Rome Babylon? Well, because they knew. They knew. And of course, John saw mystery Babylon sitting on seven hills. Rome sits on seven hills, the Vatican. So it's very clear that Rome is the beast and the Antichrist power. And of course, Rome was the seat of the occult as well. The sun and the moon is from fertility worship, masculine and feminine. Now, is duality evil? Is sun and moon bad? Is Are these things you know, wicked? Absolutely not. God created the lights in the sky. God created duality. God created male and female. Our world is extremely dualistic. It's a beautiful thing. It really is. Understanding duality and seeing how things play from one side to another, it's a beautiful thing. Where these people stumble is that they use duality to try to be like God, to try to manipulate events, to try to create things for their own agenda. This is the problem. It's not duality that's the problem. Okay, God uses duality, but God is perfectly moral and perfectly just and perfectly merciful. So it's okay for him to do that. But when you try to take it on and try to manifest things or create a problem so that you can bring in a solution, these types of things are misusing that knowledge right? The tree of knowledge of good and evil, of black and white, up and down, to understand these things and to use them for your own gain rather than to serve God and to glorify God. This is evil. And this is what these people do. But another thing too, to keep in mind, Muhammad had his visions in a cave. This is another similarity. We know Ignatius of Loyola with his spiritual exercises. Where did he get those visions? In a cave. Mary was always shown in a cave, right? That's a pagan thing. These caves are, it's a pagan, pagans were obsessed with caves. You know, even, uh, I believe Joseph Smith talked about a cave. I mean, I don't think he received his revelations in a cave, but he received his revelations from an angel. And so ultimately these things are all, you have to just listen to the Bible. The Bible says, test the spirits, have discernment because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We talked about the hijab and the nuns, how they have basically the same outfit. Nuns, look at nuns and look at the hijab. It's basically the same thing. Only men can be priests, right? Prayer beads and rosaries. It's crazy. It's really, as you go through these, it's like, wow, this I never even thought about this stuff. In Muslim countries, it's illegal to evangelize, evangelize Muslims. But Catholics never complain about no evangelism. There's no issue with Catholics. So what's going on? The real problem are true Bible-believing Christians. It's not Catholicism. That means they're on the same side. Do you see what's going on? So with that in mind, there's obviously enough to raise an eyebrow between these two religions, being very much influenced by the same spirit, the same ideas, being cahoots with one another, even though they seem opposite of one another. There's a lot more similarities than you may think. And we looked at the uh, Umayyad Mosque, and I want to keep going with a couple other examples. This is the Abu Haggag Mosque. The Mosque of Abu Haggag is a mosque in Luxor, Egypt. It is integrated into the structure of the Luxor Temple, an ancient Egyptian center of worship, making it one of the oldest continuously used temples in the world, dating back to the reign of Pharaoh Amenhotep in the 14th century. They loved their temples, people. They love their temples and their sacred holy sites because of the energy and 
the spiritual significance of these things. They're obsessed with their temples. Do you see, again, it's like, why would they build it on top of a, a pagan temple? If you are truly monotheistic, you would destroy such a thing and find a better location. But again, these things are not really mono, monotheism. In, this, in the truest sense, is a relationship with Christ. It's believing in one God. And if you believe in that God and you know the nature of that God, you don't need a temple. You don't need, a, you don't need to do sacrifices because you know that he sacrificed himself, that he's merciful, that he wants a relationship with you. You don't need temples. And so ultimately, these people are not truly monotheists. In the background, behind the thing that they tell you on the surface, they are actually secret society, occult, members, and you know who the occult pays homage to. This is Christianity's Roots in Lebanon in the Maronites. This is a longer article, but it's just one little snippet out of here, I wonder. And all these articles are pretty good, so I'll cite them, but in 1125 AD, the Crusaders built St. Mark's Church over the ruins of Tyre Cathedral. Zenun I succeeded Paulinius to the Church of Tyre, he participated in the Ecumenical Council of Nicaea in 325, which discussed the questions of the quality of the Father and the Son essence. So this Church of Tyre is very interesting. The Cathedral of Tyre, the first Christian cathedral. Let's read a little bit more about it. Following the publication of Milano Decree in 1313 AD, which guaranteed religious freedom during the reign of Emperor Constantine, there's that term religious freedom again, which you only see in Catholic countries, which is very interesting. Beginning to build the great cathedral of Tyre, it was built 10 years before the Church of Anastasis and 16 years before the Nativity Church founded by Empress Helen. It is likely that the cathedral was built over the ruins of the Temple of Melkart, and the huge stones of the temple were used for the cathedral's construction. The ceiling of the cathedral was, as was the ceiling of the Phoenician Temple of Melkart, was made of the cedars of Lebanon. So they followed even the same type of architecture. Now, you tell me if that's supposed to be a Christian cathedral, why is it built on the ruins of a pagan temple and with even the same specifications? Very interesting stuff. Again, these things, you have to look beyond what history tells you. There is a deeper motive. Baalbek, if you know about Baalbek, Baalbek is an ancient site with some of the largest stones in the world. I mean, it's pretty fascinating. These stones are huge, and a lot of people speculate on how they were moved. Probably giants, but who knows? I mean, ultimately, the history is... Look at this giant stone here. One of the largest stone of the pregnant woman, weighing approximately 1,000 tons. I mean, there's just no rational way that we could even move that today and especially to build such giant buildings. It's, it's all really fascinating. But anyway, at the beginning of the 3rd century, a lovely circular temple was added to the Baalbek complex. While early European visitors assumed it was a Venus temple due to its ornamental seashells, doves, and other artistic motifs associated with the cult of this goddess, it is not known for certain which deity the shrine was actually dedicated to. During the Byzantine Christian times, the temple was used as a church by Greek Catholics and dedicated to the early Christian martyr Saint Barnaba or Saint Barbara. Look, on the surface, this stuff seems so innocent and oh they just, you know, they just repurposed it, but if you again, if you understand the occult, if you understand secret societies <clears throat> and all this stuff, I mean it's just it's so obvious. It really is. 
This is why Catholics built secret astronomical features into churches to help save souls. Really, I don't think this is why they built it, but let's see. After centuries of war, Catholicism and science reconciled over meridian lines. Of course, Catholicism was actually behind all the science of astronomy, quote-unquote science. All the top people, first before I read this, all the top people in astronomy in the last 500, 600 years, they're all Catholic. They're all Catholic, you know, agents. Look into it. Cosmology as you believe it today. (laughs) This is another can of worms. I'm not going to get into it, but... I'll leave it at this. Cosmology, as you believe it today, is created by the beast, the mother of harlots. This is one of the abominations, which is the inversion of the truth of what God created, which is testified to in the Bible, and a false reality that makes you live in fear and atheism and all kinds of stuff. The Big Bang was a Jesuit invention. George Lemaitre, look him up. He's the one who created the Big Bang. But anyway, moving on. Again, this is a very tempting can of words. I will not indulge it. A different time. Strangers still on either side of this brass line, words and celestial images have been carved directly into the rock. There are 12 signs of the zodiac interspaced amongst Roman numerals and references to solstices. There is Aquarius, the water bearer, Capricorn, blah, blah, blah. It's got all the different... At first glance, these symbols seem pagan. (laughs) Of course they do. But here comes the apology. Even sacrilegious, as if the astral remnants of an older belief system have somehow survived beneath the feet and beyond the gaze of daily worshipers. Do you think, do you think that an ancient system that's actually older than any religion on earth has survived underneath this system? Oh, but wait, here comes the apology. Let's see what they have to tell us. Yet these symbols are not there to cast horoscopes. Oh, of course not. Okay, thank you. Whew. I was wondering, let alone spells. My goodness, they would never do such a thing. They are there for the purposes of church administration and astronomical science. This cathedral, the Basilica of of the San Petronio in Bologna, Italy, also doubles as a solar observatory. At one point, one of the most accurate in the world. And these signs of the zodiac are just part of the instrument for measuring solstices. If you believe this, then you need to go back and watch the last 20 plus episodes in this series because first and foremost if you know your history the catholic church has controlled astronomy and all the major figures in astronomy and even today the lucifer horoscope uh, telescope it was built on mount graham here in arizona where i live they sued they went into a massive legal battle with the indians the native americans of that county because they wanted to build their Lucifer telescope. Now you tell me, there's no other way you can spell an acronym for what you want other than Lucifer. Lucifer telescope, the the best telescope there is, and they built it on Mount Graham. Now why did they get into a legal battle with the Native Americans over this plot? They could pick any mountain, and yet they pursued, and they, they won, Vatican won, of course they did, Because Mount Graham is revered as a high place by the Native Americans, as a place where there's portals that open, where entities have come through those portals in their history. So you tell me, is that consistent with what we see with all these places being built on temples, old pagan sites, ritual sites? Do you see what's going on here? You have to open your eyes. It's not, 
what they tell you. Oh, these symbols are just, you know, they're just church administration. Yeah, right. Remember, there's the exoteric and esoteric. Exoteric is what they tell you on the outside. Esoteric is what you have to be initiated to learn what it really means. And of course, we have one more sample in today's gallery, which is the the Church of the Dormition of Virgin Mary. This, I believe, is in Jerusalem. But again, you see, again, they tell you this is the Trinity, right? They have a symbol of these mosaics on the ground of of the Trinity. But some of these are, you know, pagan symbols. I'm not saying the Trinity is pagan. I'm saying that they're using various things. And you'll see, like, for example, the wheel of the Zodiac is intertwined with the pictures of various animals from Revelation, the eagle with the wings and the man with the wings. So it's all just this hodgepodge system, this false religion. The penultimate circle has the evangelists and the signs of the Zodiac. Why is there the signs of the Zodiac? This is a pagan thing. They're not even the same anymore. I mean, when they were created by the Babylonians, that was thousands of years ago. The Zodiac sign that you have today is not the actual Zodiac sign because of the procession of the equinox. But you see this, this hodgepodge system. Look at this. The Crypt of the Abbey, the main altar which depicts Our Lady as the Queen of the Apostles on Pentecost. Did, did the Bible say anything about Mary being at the center as the Queen of the Apostles? Mary wasn't even mentioned in the account of Pentecost. And yet here she's pictured with a solar disk and there's light and all this stuff and she's the Queen of the Apostles. Do you remember what the Bible says about the Queen of Heaven? We'll look into that. But look at this. I mean, there's just such strange, I mean, it's just weird. You know, if you, again, if you have any shred of discernment, biblical discernment, look at this coffin, sarcophagus, which is pretty much an Egyptian type of a practice of Mary's body. It's not the actual body, but it's a statue. It's basically like a, a sarcophagus, like an Egyptian sarcophagus in a circle with candles around it that people were basically lighting candles to in a temple. A life-size statue of the sleeping virgin made out of rosewood and ivory. Just fascinating. I mean, again, if you know any of this stuff, look inside. It's just weird and creepy. An altar. Why do you have an altar in a church? Because an altar is made for sacrifices. Transubstantiation teaches you that Christ is getting sacrificed every single time. So that's just really weird. I mean, it's just uh, it's a very strange a very strange reality. And so the conclusion that we draw from all this, what's the conclusion? Well, both Catholicism and Islam share way too many similarities to just pass off as, well, coincidence or, you know, just kind of happen that way. This can't be ignored. It's very clear that Islam was created by the Catholics. And it's very clear from how they build their structures, what they believe, what are the occult symbolism behind both of these religions, how do they operate. It's very, very fascinating. Very fascinating. Again, the stuff I'm going to be covering in this episode is really just skimming the surface because ultimately there's a lot more and I encourage you to look into it, but at the same time, don't lose yourself either because the truth is just simple. The gospel is the truth. This is just designed to wake you up to see that organized religion is not the truth. Both have mixed paganism and quote-unquote monotheism into a hodgepodge to create a counterfeit system that's deceiving many. And so the papacy 
it's very clear that the papacy began Islam. The Islam, Islamic religion was designed to serve the papacy. It did so for a very short time before it got out of control, and then for many hundreds of years, it was a thorn in the side of the papacy. And now, as we see with the pictures of the Ayatollahs and the Imam, with the Pope, dark and light, they're hugging, they're kissing, they're greeting, they're making peace. Oh, we both have Mary in common. All these things are coming back to a head because the Bible predicts it. The Bible predicted that there would be a one-world religion, and ultimately, uh, that's going to happen. So, let's look at Islam as an Antichrist power. Now, I said we'd look at this, and I don't mean to look at it for too long, but ultimately, I want to show you that according to John, the Apostle John, this is an Antichrist power. We already looked at how the papacy is an Antichrist power throughout these last probably 10 episodes or so, but they're working hand in hand. And remember, the papacy is the mother of abominations. So the question is, how is Islam fulfilling this role? And the answer is through its teachings and um, and its history. So we'll find that out in just a second. Okay, so let's take a look at this first resource. This is um, a great website archive on basically the theology and teachings of Islam. I want to read a couple of things here. But the Quran says Christ was altogether saved from the indignity of the cross. And as if by miracle of likeness, someone else of the same features was crucified by the Jews under illusion, says the Quran. Verse 157. And they, the Jews, said in boast, we killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the apostle of God, in the knowledge of God. But they killed him not, nor crucified him, but it was made to appear to them that those who differ therein are full of doubts with no certain knowledge, but only conjectures to follow, for surely they killed him not. Verse 158, Nay, God raised him up unto himself, and God is mighty wise. And there is none of the people of the book that must believe in him, Christ, before his death. And on the day of judgment, he, Christ, will be a witness of these things. So basically, what does the Quran teach? That Christ wasn't the one who died on the cross for the atonement. So it denies the atonement. Of course, it has to because it's an antichrist power. We saw what spirit was leading Muhammad and what organization was guiding him and funding him and propping him up. It wasn't the Holy Spirit of God. It was an antichrist spirit. This is um, the Islamic invasion by Dr. Robert Morey. And there's a couple of interesting things in this. This is page 160, I believe. The deviations from the biblical narratives are very marked, speaking about the Quran now, and can in most cases be traced back to the legendary anecdotes of the Jewish Haggadah and the Apocryphal Gospels. So this is what Muhammad basically plagiarized and used for inspiration. Much has been written concerning the sources from which Muhammad derived his information. There's no evidence that he was able to read, and his dependence on oral communication may explain some of his misconceptions, i.e. the confusion of Haman, the minister of Ahasuerus, with the minister of Pharaoh, and the identification of Miriam, the sister of Moses, with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Muhammad's gross misunderstandings of biblical stories and doctrines reflect only a hearsay knowledge. Uh, as the great Arabic scholar Canon Edward Sell points concerning these erroneous names. He certainly did not get them from the Old Testament. The confusion of names is quite remarkable. So there's, I mean, there's a lot of books that have been written about how Muhammad is 
just first off, he would, didn't have the ability to read, so he relied on oral communication. So the question is, is the things that he wrote down, are the things that he wrote down reliable? And the answer is no. There's been plenty of people who have studied these things and reported on them. And again, Muslim apologists will deny these things, but it's, it's very obvious if you actually just dig into it a little bit. The Holy Spirit can't inspire the Quran and the Bible. So either God wrote the Bible or he wrote the Quran because there's a lot of contradictory things. That's how you know. The Bible is the word of God. And so we know when we compare it to things like the Book of Mormon, there's a lot of contradictions. They don't make sense. Book of Mormon isn't substantiated by archaeology. We know we compare it to the Quran. Quran has some ridiculous things that it says in there. And it certainly is contradictory to the Bible. So the Bible is the truth. You have to see that. Now, this is another article on LinkedIn. It's a it's a very good article, very well researched about the archaeology of the Middle East. So we're going to read a little bit about this. The religion of Islam has its focus of worship at deity by the name of Allah. The Muslims claim that Allah in pre-Islamic times was the biblical god of the patriarchs, prophets, and apostles. The issue is thus one of continuity. Was Allah the biblical god or a pagan god in Arabia during pre-Islamic times? The Muslims' claim of continuity is essential to their attempt to convert Jews and Christians for if Allah is part of the flow of divine revelation in scripture, then it is the next step in biblical religion. It's really important. Thus, we should all become Muslims. But on the other hand, if Allah was a pre-Islamic pagan deity, then its core claim is refuted. Religious claims often fall before the results of hard sciences such as archaeology. We can endlessly speculate about the past or go dig it up and see what the evidence reveals. This is the only way to find out the truth concerning the origins of Allah. As we shall see, the hard evidence demonstrates that God, that the god Allah was a pagan deity. In fact, he was the moon god who was married to the sun goddess and the stars were his daughters. Remember, the last one said that he was a she and he was the sun god versus sun goddess. But you know, at the end of the day, it's just all fertility cult, fertility cult worship. Now, this guy, just for disclaimer, this guy has a link here about some uh, thing. The reader must know that the Islam, Judaism, and organized Christianity so-called all worship a trinity of gods. This is false. Obviously, he doesn't believe in the trinity, and there's a whole series on this, but just beware if you actually do reference this article. That, you know, Again, everybody's going to have some stuff that's good and some stuff that you have to use discernment. Christianity does not believe in a trinity of gods. Christianity believes in one god, who is a triune, multi-personal being. If you can't fit that into your mind, which nobody can, that doesn't mean it's not true. And you're trying to fit God into a box. God is a three-person being. He's one being, one God, in three persons. How that works, we don't know, because he's God. But that's what the Bible forces you into, and it's ultimately what we have to accept. Archaeologists have uncovered temples to the moon god throughout the Middle East. From the mountains of Turkey to the banks of the Nile, the most widespread religion of the ancient world was the worship of the moon god. In the first literate civilization, the Sumerians have left us thousands of clay tablets in which they describe their religious beliefs. As demonstrated by Schoberg and Hall, the ancient Sumerians worshipped a moon god who was called many different names. Do you know of a god who has many different names? I do. The most popular names were Nana, Suen, Asimbabar. His symbol was the crescent moon. Isn't that funny? 
Given the amount of artifacts concerning the worship of this moon god, it is clear that this was the dominant religion in Sumeria. The cult of the moon god was the most popular religion throughout the ancient, throughout ancient Mesopotamia. The Assyrians, Babylonians, and the Akkadians took to the word suen and transformed it into the word sin as their favorite name for the moon god. Isn't that appropriate? <laughs> it's, I'll tell you, history is just so fascinating. As Professor Potts points out, sin is a name essentially Sumerian in origin, which had been borrowed by the Semites. Remember the wilderness of sin? In ancient Syria and Kana, the moon god Sin was usually represented by the moon in its crescent phase. At times, the full moon was placed inside the crescent moon to emphasize all the phases of the moon. The sun goddess was his wife of Sin, was the wife of Sin, and the stars were their daughters. For example, Ishtar was the daughter of Sin. Sacrifices to the moon god are described in the Pas Shamra texts. In the Ugaritic text, the moon god was sometimes called Kusu. In Persia, as well as in Egypt, the moon god is depicted on murals and on the heads of statues. He was the judge of men and gods. Sure he was. The Old Testament constantly rebuked the worship of the moon god. Of course, there's many citations there. When Israel fell into idolatry, it was usually the cult of the moon god. As a matter of fact, everywhere in the ancient world, the symbol of the crescent moon can be found on seal impressions, Stelis, pottery, amulets, clay tablets, cylinders, weights, earrings, necklaces, wells, and so on. It's a very prevalent thing. Like I said, it's the oldest religion on the planet, on the earth. In Tel El Obeid, a copper calf was found with a crescent moon on its forehead. An idol with the body of a bull and the head of a man was a crescent moon inlaid on its forehead with shells. In Ur, the stele of Ur-Namu was the crescent symbol placed on the top of the register of gods because the moon god was the head of the gods. What do we know about Lucifer leading a rebellion with his angels and the fallen angels? Isn't that interesting? Even bread was baked in the form of a crescent as an act of devotion to the moon god. The Ur of the Chaldeans was so devoted to the moon god that it was sometimes called Nanar in tablets from that time period. The temple of the moon god was been excavated by in Ur by Sir Leonard Woolley. He dug up many examples of moon worship in Ur, and these are displayed in the British Museum to this day. Haran was likewise noted for its devotion to the moon god. In the 1950s, a major temple to the moon god was excavated at Hazer in Palestine. Two idols of the moon god were found. Each was a statue of a man sitting upon a throne with a crescent moon carved on his chest. The accompanying inscriptions make it clear that these were the idols of the moon god. Several smaller statues were also found, which were identified by their inscriptions as the daughters of the moon god. What about Arabia? As pointed out by Professor Kuhn, Muslims are notoriously loath to preserve traditions of earlier paganism and like to garble what pre-Islamic history they permit to survive in anachronistic terms. So you have to learn your history, guys. Especially if you're Muslim, you have to realize that your beliefs are pagan. During the 19th century, Amoud, Halevi, and Glacier went to southern Arabia and dug up thousands of Sabaean, Minian, and Qatabian inscriptions, which were subsequently translated. In the 1940s, the archaeologists G. Catton Thompson and Carlton uh, Kuhn made some amazing discoveries in Arabia. During the 1950s, Wendell Phillips and Albright, Richard Bauer, and others excavated sites at Kataban. Timna and Marib, the ancient capital of Sheba. 
Thousands of inscriptions from walls and rocks in northern Arabia have also been collected. Reliefs and votive bowls used in worship of the daughters of Allah have also been discovered. The three daughters, Al-Lat, Al-Uzza, and Manat, are sometimes depicted together with Allah, the moon god represented by a crescent moon above them. The archaeology evidence demonstrates that the dominant religion of Arabia was the cult of the moon god. In Old Testament times, Nabodninus, which is around 6th century, the last king of Babylon built Taima, Arabia, as the center of the moon god worship. Sagal stated, South Arabia's stellar religion has always been dominated by the moon god in various variations. Many scholars have also noticed that the moon god's name Sin is a part of such Arabic words as Sinai, the wilderness of sin, and so on. And the popularity of the moon god waned. Elsewhere, the Arabs remained true to their conviction that the moon god was the greatest of all gods. While they worshipped 360 gods at the Kaaba in Mecca, remember the Kaaba was before Islam, the moon god was the chief deity. Mecca was in fact built as a shrine for the moon god. This is what made the most sacred site of Arabian paganism. In 1944, G. Catton Thompson revealed in her book The Tombs and Moon Temple of Hureda that she had uncovered a temple of the moon god in southern Arabia. The symbols of the crescent moon and no less than 21 inscriptions with the name Sin were found in this temple. An idol which may be this, the moon god himself was also discovered. This was later confirmed by other well-known archaeologists. The evidence reveals that the temple of the moon god was active even in the Christian era. Evidence gathered from both North and South Arabia demonstrate the moon god worship was clearly active in Muhammad's day and was still the dominant cult. According to numerous inscriptions, while the name of the moon god was Sin, his title was Al-Ilah, i.e. the deity, meaning that he was the chief or the high god among the gods. As Kuhn pointed out, the god Il or Ilah was originally a phase of the moon god. The moon god was called Al-Ilah, i.e. the god, which was shortened to Allah in pre-Islamic times. So they were using the word Allah even before Islam came around. The pagan Arabs even used Allah in the names they gave to their children. For example, both Muhammad's father and uncle had Allah as part of their names. This is before Islam. The fact that they were given such names by their pagan parents proves that Allah was the title for the moon god even in Muhammad's day. Professor Kuhn goes on to say, Similarly, under Muhammad's tutelage, the relatively anonymous Ilah became Allah, the god, uh, or Allah, the supreme being. Al-Ilah or Allah. This fact answers the questions. Why is Allah never defined in the Quran? Why did Muhammad assume that the pagan Arabs already knew who he was? Muhammad was raised in the religion of the moon god Allah, but he went one step further than his fellow pagan Arabs. While they believed that Allah, the moon god, was the greatest of all gods and the supreme deity in the pantheon of deities, so they were polytheistic, Muhammad decided that Allah was not only the greatest god, but the only god. In effect, he said something like this. Look, you already believe that the moon god Allah is the greatest of all gods. All I want you to do is to accept that the idea that he is the only god. I'm not taking away the Allah you already worship. I'm only taking away his wife and his daughters and all the other gods. This is a scene from the fact that the first point of the Muslim creed is not Allah is great, but Allah is the greatest. He is the greatest among what? The gods. Why would Muhammad say that Allah is the greatest except in a polytheistic context. The Arabic word is to contrast the greater from the lesser. 
That this is true is seen from the fact that the pagan Arabs never accused Muhammad of preaching a different Allah than the one they already worshipped. This Allah was the moon god according to the archaeological evidence. Muhammad thus attempted to have it both ways. To the pagans, he said that he still believed in the moon god Allah. To the Jews and to the Christians, he said that Allah was the, their god too. But both Jews and Christians knew better, and that is why they rejected this god Allah as a false god. Al-Kindi, one of the early Christian apologists against Islam, pointed out that Islam and its god Allah did not come from the Bible but from the pagan uh, paganism of the Sabaeans. They did not worship the god of the Bible, but the moon god and his daughters Al-Uzza, Al-Lat, and Manat. Dr. Newman concludes his study of the early Christian-Muslim debates by stating, Islam proved itself to be a separate and antagonistic religion, there's that dialectic, which had sprung up from idolatry. Islamic scholar Caesar Farah concluded, there is no reason therefore to accept the idea that Allah passed to the Muslims from the Christians and the Jews. Instead, he is pagan. The Arabs worshipped the moon god as a supreme deity. But this was not biblical monotheism. While the moon god was greater than all other gods and goddesses, this was still polytheistic pantheon of deities. Now that we have the actual idols of the moon god, it is no longer possible to avoid the fact that Allah was a pagan god in pre-Islamic times. Is it any wonder that the symbol of Islam is the crescent moon? Exactly what we talked about. That a crescent moon sits on top of their mosques and minarets? that a crescent moon is found on the flags of Islamic nations, that the Muslims fast during the month which begins and ends with the appearance of the crescent moon in the sky. All this stuff, we're going to read a little more about the origin of the name Allah, but, I mean, as you can see, these articles are pretty pretty well involved, but ultimately, it's history that people need to know. There are a billion, over a billion people in Islam today, and imagine over a billion people are being deceived into thinking they will make it to heaven or they'll make it out of the final judgment when Jesus arrives. And especially those people who are deceived into killing themselves or killing others in the name of Allah. Of course, Catholics did that too, but ultimately this is just great deception throughout history. These are pagan religions. The Arabian, the Arabians of that time and the the Middle East they worship the moon god. This is all over the place. In India, the Middle East, Africa, the moon god was everywhere. Okay? And so, what changed? Well, just the packaging. Nothing really changed. And again, to the people on the inside, they know what's up. They know who the moon god really is. It's Lucifer, it's Satan, the god of many names, remember? That's what Satan has done. God, as in the true god, Yahweh, is only one god. And he's revealed himself. So what does Satan have to do? He has to masquerade as all kinds of different gods so that ultimately, check this now, so that ultimately he can bring the world to himself into into a one world religion and say, see, I'm the god of all these different names that all these different cultures have worshipped. So, you know, worship me. That's what this is about. And we are at the tail end of that history. But Let's talk about the origin of the name of Allah. The origin of the name of Allah. The word Allah comes from the compound Arabic word al-ilah. Al is the definite article, the. And ilah is an Arabic word for God, i.e. the God. We see immediately that A, this is not a proper name, but a generic name, rather than 
rather like the Hebrew El, which is what we have seen used of any deity, and B, that Allah is not a foreign word as it would have been if it had been borrowed from the Hebrew Bible, right? So if this was a continuation, it's not consistent with the Bible and what's been revealed there by the true God. This is a purely Arabic word. It would also be wrong to compare Allah with the Hebrew or Greek word for God, El and Theos, because Allah is purely an Arabic term used exclusively in reference to an Arabic deity. The Encyclopedia of Religion says Allah is a pre-Islamic name corresponding to the Babylonian Baal. Did you know that? That's interesting. I know that Muslims will find this hard to believe, so I'm going so I'm now going to make many citations and present the archaeological evidence to prove conclusively that this is true. Though this data will be painful for many of our readers, or in this case listeners, it is necessary to face the truth. Facts are facts, and unless you're willing to desert all logic, reason, and common sense, and the evidence of your eyes, they must be faced. Allah is found, this is now quotes, Allah is found in Arabic inscriptions prior to Islam. Encyclopedia Britannica. All these things are sourced. The Arabs before the time of Muhammad accepted and worshipped after a fashion a supreme god called Allah. This is from Encyclopedia of Islam. Allah was known to be Known to the pre-Islamic Arabs, he was one of the Meccan deities in Psychopedia of Islam. Ilah appears in pre-Islamic poetry. By frequency of usage, Al-Ilah was con- contracted to Allah, frequently attested to in pre-Islamic poetry, Islamic uh, Encyclopedia of Islam. The name Allah goes back before Muhammad, Encyclopedia of World Mythology and Legend. The origin of this, Allah, goes back to the pre-Muslim times. Allah is not a common name meaning God or a God, and the Muslim must use another word or form if he wishes to indicate any other than his own peculiar deity in Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics. So Allah is just a generic name for the God. Scholar Henry preserved Hemp Smith of Harvard University states, Allah was already known by the name to the Arabs the Bible and Islam, or on the influence of the Old Testament. Dr. Kenneth Craig, former editor of the prestigious scholarly journal Muslim World, and an outstanding modern Western Islamic scholar, whose works were generally published by Oxford University, comments the name Allah is also evident in archaeological and literary remains of pre-Islamic Arabia. Dr. W. Montgomery Watt, who was a professor of Arabic and Islamic studies at Edinburgh University and visiting professor of Islamic studies at at College de France, Georgetown University and University of Toronto, has done extensive work on the pre-Islamic concept of Allah. He concludes, In recent years, I have become increasingly convinced that for an adequate understanding of the career of Muhammad and the origin of Islam, great importance must be attached to the existence in Mecca of belief in Allah as a high God. In a sense, this is a form of paganism, but it's also different from paganism as commonly understood that it deserves separate treatment. Cesar Farah, in his book on Islam, concludes his discussion of the pre-Islamic meaning of Allah by saying, There is no reason, therefore, to accept the idea that Allah passed to the Muslims from the Christians and the Jews. So there's no continuation. It's an Arabic pagan history. According to Middle East scholar E.M. Wary, whose translation of the Quran is still used today, in pre-Islamic times, Allah worship as well as the worship of Baal were both astral religions in that they involved the worship of the sun, the moon, and the stars. So interesting. In ancient Arabia, the sun god was viewed as a female goddess and the moon as the male god. 
as has been pointed out by many scholars as Alfred Guillaum, the moon god was also called by various names, one of which was Allah. The name Allah was used for the personal name of the moon god, in addition to other titles that could be given to him. Allah, the moon god, was married to the sun goddess. Together they produced three goddesses who were called the daughters of Allah. These three goddesses were called Alat, Aluza, and Manat. The daughters of Allah, along with Allah and the sun goddess, were viewed as high gods. That is, they were viewed as being the top of the pantheon of Arabian deities. It's from the Islamic invasion. I think we read that a little bit out of that book. The Encyclopedia of World Mythology and Legend records, along with Allah, however, they worshipped a host of lesser gods and daughters. So, I mean, we could we could go on a little bit more about this, but I wanted you to read all these sources and to realize that, what? Well, that Allah was used by pagans before Islam was created, even up until the day the Muslim or that uh, Muhammad started to do his thing. The cult of Allah, the moon god worship, was very prevalent. And so Muhammad basically just integrated it into Islam into the new religion by with a couple tweaks, but nothing really changed. It was still worship of the same deity. That deity is not a continuation of the Bible, of the Hebrew scriptures that reveal Yahweh, the eternal God, the creator, but a pagan deity. And so you have to realize that that pagan deity was another name for Baal. And who was another name for Baal? That's Satan. Satan is masquerading as all of these different gods. Satan is the one who told the fallen angels to leave their post to create a offspring and basically create, you know, a, a one world system through this offspring to prevent the Messiah from being born. Satan is the one that's orchestrated all of these things, all of these counterfeit religions. All the gods of the pagan religions were Satan and his group of fallen angels, the pantheon. Zeus, Allah, it doesn't matter, Jupiter, Saturn, <laughs> we're going to read about Saturn in a little bit, but all these things are the same. This is Hathor, the cow goddess in Egypt. Hathor, the cow goddess, is among the most famous goddesses worshipped in the ancient Egyptian era, also referred to as the great one of many names. There it is again. The great one of many names. The occultists say this about Lucifer all the time. Hathor had many titles which made her very important in, ver- in every sphere of ancient Egypt, Egyptian life from birth until death. The Egyptians worshipped the devil, the one of many names. And of course, in this case, he was parading around as a female, but he's also male. It doesn't matter. The spirit star can appear as what whatever they want. But here's Hathor. Again, you got the crescent, the moon, and the sun. We'll see what the moon and the sun represent. But these are just different images. You can see the change of role. In later times, when the cult of Osiris gained popularity, the role of Hathor changed. She was not known to welcome the arrival of the dead to the underworld. She was now known. So now she moved to the underworld, who dispersed water to their soul from the branches of the sycamore and also offered food. Does that does that sound like a counterfeit of somebody? It's a counterfeit of Christ who said he'll give you the living water and he's the bread of life. Hawthorne was also represented as a cow suckling the soul of the dead, thus giving them help during their mummification their journey to the hall of judgment and the weighing of the soul, all works-based religions that has not changed at all. Catholicism teaches a purgatory where you're basically working off your penance. How is that any different from all these Egyptian mystery religions? It's not. 
god of many names. That's really what this is. Isis. Isis was an, initially an obscure goddess who lacked her own dedicated temples, but she grew in importance as the dynastic age progressed until she became one of the most popular deities of ancient Egypt. Her cult subsequently spread throughout the Roman Empire, and Isis was worshipped from England to Afghanistan. She's still revered by pagans today. Isis, interesting, huh? Isis is pictured with a crescent and a sun. Again, same stuff. And if you look at Osiris, he's got the two. You know, here's Isis, by the way, with Horus. Again, where does this? What does this image remind you of? All the merry worship that we're going to be talking about in this episode. Birth, death, and resurrection of Osiris, the ancient god of the Egyptian god. This is just a picture, but I want you to see these little items that he had. We talked about this in Mystery Babylon, but if this is your first time learning all these things, look at the picture of Osiris holding these two keys, these two rods, basically, and then look at. Pope Francis is a signature piece of jewelry, the pectoral cross. Pope Francis has this piece of jewelry, which is very interesting, very reminiscent of the worthless shepherd, right? The per- On the surface, it shows this figure with his arms crossed in an X, holding what appears to be a sheep. And it's, oh, it's it's a shepherd, and he's holding the sheep, and there's a Holy Spirit. But again, remember, these people are occultists. The arms crossed like this resembles Osiris, and what appears to you as a sheep is most likely a symbol of holding the keys of death and life. Again, the Pope appears to be the vicar of Christ, the one that represents Christ on earth, taking the place of Christ through a false spirit, arms crossed, he's the one who holds the keys just like Osiris. So this is, you know, all occult stuff I wanted to show you. And what about the labarum? The Labarum, sacred military standard of the Christian Roman emperors, first used by Constantine. We talked about this. In the earlier part of the 4th century, the Labarum, a Christian version of the Vexillum, the military standard used earlier in the Roman Empire, incorporated the Chiro, the monogram of Christ, in a golden wreath atop the staff. If you remember the vision behind this that Constantine received and how a false spirit was guiding him to do this, All of this makes sense. All this worldly manifested stuff to create a counterfeit religion and and the basically the false spirit that was leading that. The origin of the Labarum. Let's read a little bit about it. William Arthur, the church in the catacombs from lectures delivered before the Young Men's Christian Association in Exeter Hall from November 1840 on February uh, to February 1850. Let's read a little bit about this. Looking at again, you find that the more ancient tombs have not merely the cross rounded at the top, but the mark exactly like an X with a P run up the center of it. That's the Chiro. What does this mean? It soon explains itself. The Greek letter X, Ch, resembles our X, and this is the first letter in the word Christ. The Greek letter P, or R, resembles our P, and is the second letter in the name. The sign, therefore, of the X with the P run up its center was precisely the name, or sorry, precisely the same as if we, for the name of Christ, wrote the abbreviations CHR, placing the R between the C and the H. So basically it's Christ, I mean CHR, the first two letters. It was not properly a symbol of anything, but simply a contracted name and monogram. Of this we have further information than the fact that even to this day, 
we see the same sign as contraction of the word Christ. For you write Christian or Xmas or Xtian and so on. The earliest Christians in Rome went to the catacombs to worship among the dead. The origin of the labarum, the chiro symbol, is attributed to the emperor Constantine, but this same symbol can be found on ancient Egyptian coins from 200 BC. Clearly, this symbol is much older than Christianity. The chiro symbol is, like the eye of Horus, based on the outline of a mushroom shape. So they can talk a little bit more about how that comes from these occult things, but these symbols that Constantine got a vision of, and again, creating his false religion, they're all occult symbols. Okay, this is a start, was a deity, but again, all the stuff, the more you read about it, you see the truth behind all these things. A start, Ashtoreth is the queen of heaven, to whom the Canaanites burned offerings and poured libations to. This is all in Jeremiah. If you want to look up queen of heaven, look in Jeremiah. And this is what they believed in. It was the queen of heaven is a female deity. And her title was queen of heaven. Jenny, with this is a tweet of a picture. Jenny with the sun and moon, Neo-Hittite, 9th century BC. So this is like 3,000 years ago. Aleppo Museum in Syria. What are they doing? They're worshiping a crescent moon with the sun. Look at the symbol on this archaeology. This is from Assyria, I believe. It looks like an Assyrian type of thing, but uh, Hittites, apparently, in Syria. But either way, look at the symbol, crescent moon with a sun. So the question is, why does your religion use these symbols still today if they know what's involved with them? Christ never told us to do any of these things. This is the Black Madonna, which we'll talk about in just a second. So really quick, okay, what, what do we conclude from this? Well, the conclusion is that Catholicism and Islam are modern-day pagan mystery religions. They present themselves as monotheistic, but in truth, in the background, in reality, through history, they are just pagan recreations, false systems, counterfeit systems of the truth. Both have roots in sun, moon, fertility, goddess, god, worship, and the occult. So now ask yourself, if you know all these things are true, which they are, why would you use them all over the place? Why would the monstrance be a sun and a moon? Why would every mosque have a crescent moon on top of it? I mean, you're worshiping the moon? Why is that? Look beyond what they tell you and see the truth, because the truth is the truth will set you free, and the truth is the gospel, but the truth is obvious if you see beyond what they're telling you. They're telling you one thing, and ultimately, you have to remember that it's one big club, and you and I aren't in it. I want to jump now to Mary, because Mary is an important part. It's going to play an important part in reuniting Catholicism with Islam. And let's take a look at a few things. This is from the uh, Sophia Foundation. The Black Madonna had divine mystery veiled in blackness. Wow, that sounds just very red flaggish. Um, okay, darkness is the one true. Whoops, let's go back here. This is from Helena Blavatsky, the famous Satanist who wrote the Secret Doctrine. Darkness is the one true actuality, the basis and the root of light, without which the latter could never manifest itself nor even exist. 
light is matter and darkness is pure spirit. Is that what the Bible says? Compare that to John 1, where Jesus is the light of men and the darkness didn't overcome it. Jesus says he's the source of life, so light is the source of all that exists. And that light is the light of Christ. But in this, the inversion that comes from the Satanist that tells you that darkness is the the source of all things. Isn't that interesting? The Black Madonna, an image of divinity shrouded in darkness, is enshrined in the countless pilgrim churches, in remote monasteries, in tiny chapels, in vast cathedrals, down in dark crypts and upon high altars. There's that high places again. In Sicily, Spain, Switzerland, France, Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Turkey. And as Black Tara in China. Did you know that it was in China too? Interesting, huh? As Kali in India and as Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico. So this is a pretty big thing. She has been visited by millions of people for hundreds of years. Fascinating. More than 500 of the world's Madonna images are black or dark. Who is the black Madonna? What does she represent in the world? What is her message? It is possible to consider the black Madonna as the archetypical counterpart of the Virgin Mary. There we go. It's a duality again, a cult duality in which they interrelate as the yin and yang of the Taoist symbol create a whole and each half contains the other. Does that sound like scripture or the Holy Spirit to you? Sounds like occult mysticism. The black Madonna is known as the queen of the earth and Mary is the queen of heaven. Who was really, who is known as the queen of heaven? Remember a start to the Canaanites. There's no queen of heaven mentioned anywhere in the Bible, anywhere in the Testament, unless it's referring to this pagan practice. The black Madonna is fertile and generative as Mary is the icon of the immaculate conception and incorruptibility. Immaculate conception is a false doctrine. The Black Madonna is the virgin who is whose consort to no man or deity as all life emanated from her as Mother Nature. So again, interweaving this feminine goddess worship with, with things that are established, like Mary, of course, Mary existed, but then elevating Mary to a goddess level. Mary received the seed of God in the form of the Holy Spirit, yet although it is, impo- it is possible to consider them as archetypal counterparts of the divine feminine, both the Black Madonna and Mary, in the essence of their being, represent the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy Grail, bearing divine wisdom and containing the divine, divinized soul. So it's just it's all just paganized, New Age stuff that is taking its roots in Luciferian Satan worship and, and pagan idolatry and applying them to these things that are true, like Mary being the mother of Jesus. The false gospel in the stars, preparing the way of the Antichrist. This is a picture of the Virgo, the black virgin. It's just very eerie stuff. I mean, look at, does this look like Mary and Jesus? Or does this look like some sort of occult thing birthing the Antichrist, a false Christ that will come? Very just eerie, just, just really eerie looking stuff. Virgo transitions to Mary. We have discussed the ancient worship of Virgo and her archetypes, Eve and Isis. In the Christian era, this goddess worship was continued in Gnostic forms of Christianity, which originated in the school of Alexandria, Egypt, founded by Clement. H.P. Blavatsky wrote in Isis Unveiled, Cyril, the bishop of Alexandria, had openly embraced the cause of Isis. Remember, Alexander was the seat of the occult. So even though they had quote-unquote Christians there, it was the seat of the occult. 
the Egyptian goddess, and had anthropomorphized her into Mary, the mother of God. So this happened quite a while ago. The Greek adaptation of Virgo, the mother goddess, was Demeter, whose daughter Kore was abducted by Pluto, god of the underworld. Kore would, who would remain the Dark Lord's queen, and her name would no longer be Kore, the maiden, but Persephone, she who is to be feared. The Alexandrian Gnostics worshipped Kore and justified their pagan goddess worship by giving her the trappings of Christianity. Quote, another important feature of the Gnostic tradition of Epiphany is that it really is a feminine holiday. St. Clement of Alexandria mentioned that the followers of the Gnostic master Basilides feasted on the day of the baptism and kept a long vigil before it. Epiphanius gave us a detailed description of how the Alexandrian Gnostics celebrated the Epiphany. They did this in the sanctuary of the main goddess Kore, whom they equated with the image of the Holy Virgin. At midnight, they descended with the torches into the crypt of the temple and brought the wooden statue of Kore forth in procession. The maiden was pre- represented naked and sitting with crosses marked on her brow, her hands, and her knees. Very strange stuff. The statue was carried seven times around the central shrine and was then retired to the crypt once more. The Gnostics said that on this day, Kore, the virgin, gave birth to the divine principle known as the Christ. This is a Gnostic idea. It is formed, it is from the feminine intuitive consciousness and the feeling nature that the messianic power of the individualized consciousness is born. Thus, the human nature of Jesus or every man is transformed into divine and spiritual nature by the holy female power, the Holy Spirit, in the initiation rite of baptism. So this is just super, super deceived pagan stuff, they believe. But moving on really quick, it was in the thoroughly Gnostic culture of Alexandria that the mother goddess evolved into Mary Magdalene. And if you remember, again, just a quick, another quick break, but uh, the Da Vinci Code and all these heretical things, that, that it's all Gnostic stuff, man, just male-female worship. Ian Begg wrote in The Cult of the Black Virgin that many of the finest Gnostics writings are of Alexandrian inspiration or origin. Alexandria is also the main source of Gnostic works, including linking Jesus with Mary Magdalene. According to this tradition, it was through the Magdalene, rather than through the through Peter and the male apostles, that Jesus transmitted his secret doctrine. I mean, you could get so lost in this stuff if you don't have biblical discernment. You really can. And a lot of people sadly do believe it. They believe that Jesus had a secret teaching and it's been suppressed by the Catholic Church. Well, first off, do you realize that the Catholic Church is the beast? And that this whole idea is, of Gnosticism is their... It's part of who they are. So Gnosticism is a, is a deception. It's an illusion. Jesus said, I have said nothing in secret. So anybody telling you that there's secret teachings of Jesus is a deceiver. They don't believe in Jesus. Not in the Jesus that can save you. Not in Jesus of the Gospels who said nothing in secret. And had a very simple message that people still stumble on against today. The message that the gospel, that he's going to die, he's died for your sins, you have faith in him, and that faith will save you on Judgment Day. Very simple. God's doing the work. And yet people have still tried to appropriate these things into an occult, mystical sense where the Virgin Mary actually represents the birth of the you know, Christ consciousness, and now we can ascend to Godhood. I mean, it's just, again, nothing new under the sun. The lie that was given to Eve in the Garden of Eden, 
that you can be like God is being played out over and over again through all these different chapters of history. And if you have eyes to see, you will see these things clearly. This is from Isis Unveiled by Helena Blavatsky. Again, she was one of the mothers of the New Age movement, huge Satanist in the 1800s. But this is her book, uh, Isis Unveiled, on page 209. And she compares Hindu, Egyptian, and Roman Catholic understandings of this mother goddess. And you can see here, there's a column of all these comparisons. I mean, you have eternal virginity. This is Hindu. Uh, Virgo geniatrix. This is Egyptian. And virgin of virgins. You know, mother of Krishna, mother of Horus, mother of Christ. Now, again, all these things, look, you can get, don't swerve to the right or to the left, remember. Okay, just because this stuff paints the accurate picture that the Roman Catholics have turned Mary into a pagan. They haven't really turned anything. I mean, they, they have continued their pagan worship and appropriated Mary into it. That doesn't mean that Mary wasn't a real person, that she didn't give birth to Jesus. I mean, all these things actually happened. But the way that they have elevated Mary to a level of Godhood, basically, as the co-redemptrix, as the queen of Pentecost, the queen of heaven, this is all pagan stuff because the Catholics, Catholicism, is a mystery religion. Again, all these places were the seat of occultism. And when Alexandria burned down, Rome became the center. So keep in mind, Isis and the Virgin Mary, a pagan com- a pagan conversion. I want to read a couple things here. Um... Here we go. Through the icon of Christ and his works of salvation is he whom we adore. Through sacred images of the Holy Mother of God, of the angels and the saints, we venerate the persons represented. This is catechism of the Catholic Church. So you're basically worshiping. And again, if you look at these pictures there, you have the Virgin Mary with the little baby Jesus that can't do anything. He's just a little baby. Mary's the emphasis. And then you have Isis and Horus. I mean, it's literally the same stuff, guys. Not that Mary didn't exist. Not that she didn't give birth to Jesus. It is the idolization and making statues and imagery and worshiping her as queen of heaven and co-redemptrix. This is pagan stuff designed to move your attention to the feminine, which is really Lucifer. If you remember from the occult, they believe that the virgin, celestial virgin, is actually Lucifer. Again, the god of many names. He can be male or female. doesn't matter. Representation of the divine plays a fundamental role in the construction of all faiths. Whether that materialization manifests itself in elaborate displays or through deliberate non-representation, the power of iconography is crucial in the power of Catholic worship. In the history of the church, it is generally identified by its defense of icons and construction of ornate shrines and cathedrals, which we looked at. However, in the late second century, the Christian church was characterized by its complete lack of devotional objects in favor of full concentration on the power of scripture, as it should be. The nature of the church shifted dramatically in the third and fourth centuries. What happened then? That's when church and religion were united by Constantine. As the process of Christianization necessitated an exchange between the cultural systems of Roman society and the belief structures of Christian of the Christian church. When converts flooded the church during the 4th century, they brought their cultural practices with them. As a result, the church assimilated rituals and objects commonly associated with paganism into Christian worship. We looked at this in past episodes. Pagan rituals revolved around 
material materiality, if I can pronounce that right, and physicality, which allowed individuals to experience their beliefs and connect with the divine. Again, fleshly things for the eyes, statues, icons, the tangibility of these sacred objects through devotional objects demystified the connection to the divine, making them unintelligible, making the unintelligible intelligible. Again, you're trying to fit God into a statue or a picture just to feel comfortable, but that the whole point is that you can't do that. The whole point is you can't understand the Trinity. The whole point is that God is a spiritual king. This is what the Jews stumbled with for hundreds of years. Christianity hadn't to adapt in order to satisfy these societal needs. The extent to which pagan practice directly influenced Christianity cannot be measured. Nevertheless, it is clear that the rituals and iconography of the church became more elaborate and complex following the influx of a large portion of society into the church in the 4th century. The early Christian church's success depended on its successful assimilation of the material cultural uh, associated with religious practice. One particular type of object exists in the threshold between the pagan and Christian worlds, providing a concrete metaphor for the nature of conversion and Roman Christianization. The statues of Isis, renewed as the Virgin Mary. Popular imagery of Isis was integrated into the new church in several ways. First, some statues themselves were physically converted and reused as icons of the Virgin Mary. Just like they reused temples, they recycled statues of Isis. And this is where your imagery of Mother Mary comes from. Additionally, conventional iconography of the Egyptian goddess may have been adopted in the reproduction of new works in order to portray the nature of Mary. Why would you portray the nature of Mary with a pagan deity? Isis was commonly depicted seating holding the infant Horus, which could have easily been translated into the Virgin Mary, cradling Jesus as a child. Later images of Isis typically portrayed the goddess alone, standing shrouded in fabric and often holding a cistern, a cistrum. Apuleius describes such statues in the Golden Ass, in which supplicants clothed, bathed, and fed the goddess, and new converts were costumed in her image. With the addition of some fabric and the extraction of Egyptian details, the mother of the universe, mother goddess again, would have stood visibly and clearly converted into the mother of God. So you have these pictures of, again, these pagan statues that all led to this idolization that you have today. And I could read more. This is a, all these articles are just so amazing, but they're a little bit lengthy. But look, the history of these beliefs is pagan. It's pagan. doesn't mean that Mary didn't exist, but it does mean that the way it is being carried out is pagan. Why? Because Mystery Babylon, Mystery Babylon, the mother of abominations and harlots, which is a mystery religion, a pagan religion that worships Lucifer with secret societies controlling all these various people, is going to integrate its pagan practices into one world religion. The God of many names will reveal himself and become a false god. The pagan religions of Catholicism, of Islam, Mormonism, all these places we looked at, they're all unifying into one paradigm. It's coming. It's very much a real thing. This is not conjecture. It's not conspiracy theory. It's a real thing. This is from a man named Dr. Lawrence McCroby. Universal Maternal Mediation of Mary is what the Catholics believe. The foundation of Christianity under the Catholic doctrine heavily derives from the selfless love that Mary, the mother of Jesus, exhibited by 
acceding to the spiritual call to bear the baby Jesus. Be it done to me according to your word, Luke one thirty eight. These words of ultimate trust mark the beginning of the New Testament between humankind and God as Mary accepted her participation in the redemptive task. So do you see how they tie Mary? I mean, Maryology, I could probably spend a whole another how many hours on Maryology, but it's ultimately it's attributing the gospel and scripture to Mary really instead of making Jesus the focus. Jesus said the gospels and the scriptures basically testified of him. The law and the prophets were testifying and pointing to Christ. The New Testament did not begin when Mary said, yes, thank you, I will you know, do your will upon me and I will bear the child. That's not when the New Testament began. The New Testament began as soon as Adam and Eve fell. In Genesis 3, verse 15, when God gave the announcement of what would happen, which is the Messiah would come and crush the head of the snake. That's when the New Testament began. And in fact, you could even go farther than that because the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, that was before time began. But if you're Catholic and you are Armenian in your theology and you're synergistic, meaning you believe in free will as the, as the foundational concept that we have to do something, then you will interpret all of these things in a very fleshly and man-centered way. And they've done that with Mary. They've appropriated Mary in ways that just make absolutely no sense to Scripture. And I can give you an example. In Genesis 3, verse 15, I'm going to jump to Scripture really quick. When God gives the announcement that he's going to put enmity, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Everybody believes that this is the proto-gospel, the first, the proto-evangelion, the first time the gospel was announced of God's plan. What's the plan? That there will be a Messiah that will one day bruise uh, bruises the head of the snake, meaning destroy the snake, crush the snake, and you shall bruise his heel, of course, crucifixion. You'll hurt him but you're not going to kill him because he is God. So that's pretty clear. But now look at what the Dewey Reims Bible says, which is a Jesuit Catholic Bible that we've talked about before. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmities between thee and the woman and thy seed and her seed. She shall crush thy head and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. Wait a minute, she shall crush thy Do you see what happened? They changed the he to a she. So you have to be very wise to these things because this is all pagan. It puts your attention on the feminine rather than the masculine. Mary is not a co-redeemer. And if you study history a little bit, you'll remember that all these things come from pagan practices. In Ephesus, they had a temple to Artemis, the goddess Artemis. She was the goddess of nature, of hunting, some other things. The Romans identified her with, with Diana, and some even say that there was some mother goddess worship. Okay, you also had Isis in there. You know, all these things that we talked about previously. But Paul, when he was evangelizing to these areas, started a riot because his preaching was converting people. They stopped buying idols, and the people who were making the idols got really annoyed. And so they, they started a conflict. Now, by the, by the time the Council of Ephesus came in 431 A.D., 
in Ephesus, obviously, that's where Mary received the title Mother of God. Now do the math. You had all these pagan practices, Diana, Artemis, Isis. All these things were going on in the culture. People were not, I mean, even look at the Old Testament. The Israelites were constantly going to and fro between God and pagan deities and mixing the two together sometimes, right? And and that didn't stop with Jesus. People were still doing that and are still doing that today. But they were doing that throughout history and eventually it just got reappropriated because why? Because Satan wanted to create his counterfeit religion and this was all part of it. His spirit was manipulating all these people to do these things because they are completely contradictory to the Bible. So let's talk about Mary and Islam. There's a lot to talk about with this one, but again, there's just great stuff with with this because it's about the plan that will be at the end of the age, and we are in that plan right now. Miriam bint Imram, Mary or Mary, the daughter of Imram, is revered in Islam. The Quran refers to her 70 times and explicitly identifies her as the greatest woman to have ever lived. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Jesus and the Virgin Mary in Islam. Now, this is from a Muslim website, so it's called Islam Online. Let's see what they believe. A messenger is a prophet who is given revelation from God. The Torah was revealed to Moses. The gospel was revealed to Jesus. No, Jesus revealed the gospel, but let's move on. Many people may be surprised that Muslims love Mary, the mother of Jesus. In the Quran, no woman is given more attention than Mary. Mary receives the most attention of any woman mentioned in the Quran, even though all the prophets, with the exception of Adam, had mothers. Of the Quran's 114 chapters, she is among the eight people who have a chapter named after them. The 19th chapter of the Quran is named after her, Maryam. Maryam means Mary in Arabic. The third chapter in the Quran is named after her father, Imran. Chapters Maryam and Al-Imran are among the most beautiful chapters in the Quran. Mary, peace be upon her, is the only woman specifically named in the Quran. An authentic hadith states that the Prophet Muhammad said, quote, The superiority of Asia to other ladies is like the superiority of tharid, i.e. meat and bread dish, to other meals. Many men reach the level of perfection, but no woman reached such a level except Mary, the daughter of Imran, and Asia, the wife of Pharaoh. Indeed, both Mary and Pharaoh's wife were an example the Virgin Mary plays a very significant role in Islam. Hmm, very interesting statement. She is an example and a sign for all people. Do you see what's going on here? I hope you do, because by the time that Muhammad was doing his thing, not only was paganism in Arabia still going on, but the Catholic Church was already well established. The papacy was already full and fully in control. All these appropriations of temples of Isis and Horus to Mary, the Queen of Heaven, all these things had already taken place. And remember who advised Muhammad were, he was surrounded by Catholics. And so what was, what's going on here? Muhammad's approach was very much to elevate Mary, to, to be consistent with Catholic doctrine so that they were consistent. And it shows, it's very clear if you have eyes to see. Our Lady of Lebanon, very interesting structure. Again, these statues, they're built on these spiral-like high places. Look at this. It was erected in 1907 on top of a hill. (laughs) 
650 meters above sea level. Interesting, isn't it? Always on these hills and these high places. Spiral staircase, if you know anything about spiral staircases in the occult. And you have a statue of Our Lady of Lebanon. Papal visit. Pope John Paul II visited the shrine when he made an official visit to Lebanon in 1997. He conducted a mass in the modern basilica. On December 8th, the Vatican announced the, that the World Day of the Sick would be celebrated on February 11th, 1999 at Our Lady of Lebanon in Harissa. Pope John Paul prayed that Our Lady of Lebanon, who had watched over the agonizing suffering of the Lebanese people, could help all those who were suffering in the world. Gosh, so, so such a nice fellow to be giving such prayers. Pope Benedict the Sixteenth launched an appeal for peace in Lebanon and Gaza by invoking the protection of Our Lady of Lebanon on January 28, 2007. Now, first off, who is behind all this world conflict anyway? It's the same beast. And yet here they are playing bad cop, good cop, bringing the conflict and then bringing the solution, which is Mary worship. It's just so diabolical and evil. It really is. But look at the look at the similarities. I mean, again, it's just, we'll, we'll keep looking at this. Put it all together. The Rub el-Hazib, also known as the Arabian Islamic Star, is a Quraysh tribe Arabian symbol. It is the shape of an octogram represented as two overlapping squares. Now, this doesn't seem like anything, but if you know the occult, if you have two squares within each other or two triangles within each other, like the quote-unquote Star of David, which is not a Star of David at all, it's the Star of Remphan, it's an occult symbol showing male and female going within each other and basically fertility worship. It's the same thing. Now keep this in mind with the eight-pointed star. Star of the sea. Question, what is the origin of Mary's title, quote, star of the sea? Answer, Marian star symbolisms generally come into two versions, the six-pointed star and the eight-pointed star. Well, you don't say. That's the same as the occult. The six-pointed star, which is in fact the Star of David, which we talked about, it's not the actual Star of David, uh, is used to highlight Mary's role in salvation as helper in the restitutal perfectionist or repatriatrix parentenum, whatever these words mean. Basically, Mary's role as the co-redemptrix, which is also a false teaching. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ. It symbolizes the restitution of the original harmony between God and humanity, really, brought about by incarnation and redemption, of which Mary is a helper. The number eight symbolizes salvation, as meaning is derived from Genesis 6.18. Eight people escaped the deluge, finding salvation in the ark. Gosh, all these things sound so biblical and good when you read them. The eighth day is, according to Augustine, like the first, restitution and with permanent character perfection. More generally, independently from the number of radiating points, the star symbolism may be used to articulate one or all of the following characteristics of Mary. Let's see, what are her characteristics? A, her privileges, in particular her mission as mother of the Redeemer, or her holiness full of grace. So she's sinless, basically. Her anticipatory or demonstrative role, forerunner, announcer, with regard to Christ. She is the dawn. Really? Christ is the rising sun and the Trinity. Okay, well, Christ said that he's the morning star. So interesting. Somebody else is trying to be the morning star. I wonder who that could be. Her role is the luminous and enlightening. Well, there it is. If, if the other things didn't clear it up for you, 
There it is. Her role as luminous and enlightening. Who is the one that brings the light? Who is the light bearer? That's Lucifer. And again, this is consistent with everything we've talked about with paganism and the belief that pagans believed and who they actually attribute the celestial virgin to. Here's Virgin Mary, the star of the sea, a little old painting of her with a six-pointed star. Again, you can look all this stuff up. It's just, you know, these are occult things. If you know this shape in the background and what it means, I'm not going to mention it, but you can probably guess what it means in, in context of fertility worship. So just look at these sources and you'll see the truth. Mary with the eight-pointed star. Here it is again. If you can't really see it, maybe I can zoom in. I mean, it's it's her medallion, basically. And it's the eight-pointed star. Again, these are all part of both Catholic and Muslim sources. This is a book called The Keys of This Blood, and it's by Malachi Martin. And this is an interesting, interesting little text I want to read about here. Okay, it says, In reckoning the future of Islam, Pope John Paul takes into account that as a genuinely religious faith, it preserves certain fundamental truths that the Holy Spirit reveals to all people of goodwill and that in God's providence, Islam, Islam can be a threshold from which it, its adherents can be prepared to accept the only historical revelation by God in this world. What he, what he means is the Catholic Church. Now, take a look at this sentence. This is on page 285 of Keys of This Blood by Malachi Martin. There will come a day, John Paul believes, when the heart of Islam, already attuned to the figures of Christ and of Christ's mother, Mary, will receive the illumination, very occult term, it needs. In the meantime, the pontiff knows that Islam will stand against him and his church and his geopolitical vision. Still, the Pope can foresee no possibility that the Angelus mentality, so graphically clear in the first globalist situation, will serve as the practical stuff from which the world will be able to fashion its future. Of course, I mean, look, he knows the dialectic. He knows the history of Islam. Stand against him. And stand against him in what way? As a dialectic that will push people into accepting him as the world leader. As the Bible predicts, the Bible predicts these things, that the, the world will marvel after the beast, that the kings of the earth will give their power to the beast for a short while, that the woman, which is a church, will ride the beast, which is a geopolitical, you know, um, political religious union. And it's happening. It's happening with, with Islam. It's going to happen differently than it happens with Protestant America. Because again, remember the divine manipulation of the threads. This is what you have to remember. They're, they're constantly using these threads to bring people together. Pope Francis leads Hail Mary for victims of earthquake in Turkey and Syria. This is a recent article this year. There is again, dark and light, black and white. But this is February 8th, 2023. Pope Francis concluded his public audience on Wednesday with a prayer for the intercession of the Virgin Mary for the thousands of victims of a deadly earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Let's pray together so that these brothers and sisters can move forward from this tragedy. And we pray that Our Lady will protect them, the Pope said, at the Vatican's Paul VI audience hall on February 8th. You mean the audience hall that's shaped like a snake where the dragon speaks? Yeah. He then led pilgrims at the event in praying a Hail Mary for all those affected. Oh my gosh, what a tender heart. 
A series of large earthquakes in parts of Turkey and Syria have killed estimated almost 10,000 people, according to the latest estimates. So a lot of people died in these earthquakes. Very horrible destruction. But if we know anything from what the Bible says, what does the Bible say? Earthquakes will happen in diverse places. What is that a sign of? That's a sign that you need to repent and believe the gospel. God, Yahweh, the only God, is the one responsible for everything, including natural disasters. And instead of bringing the truth to them, this is just so disgusting and so subversive, instead of bringing the truth, what does he do? Oh, there are brothers and sisters. He, he makes you feel like he's supporting you. But let's let's shoot that conscious attention and direction to a false idol, Mary. Let's pray to Mary. Instead of saying, you need to repent and believe the gospel because the gospel is the truth, he leads you into an idolatry, into paganism, into a false path. This is the Antichrist power at work. And if you have eyes to see, then you will see it. Um, this is living the worthy life. Mother Mary converts the world. Gosh, what a, what a title. In his 1952 book, World's First Love, Bishop Fulton Sheen devoted an entire chapter to how Mother Mary could be used as a key to converting Muslims all over the world to Christianity. Isn't that interesting? Let's see a little more. It is our firm belief that the fears some entertain concerning the Muslims are not to be realized, but that Islam instead will eventually be converted to Christianity and in a way that even some of our missionaries have never suspected. It is our belief that this will happen not through the direct teaching of Christianity, of course, but through a summoning of the Muslims to a veneration of the Mother of God. This is the line of argument. The Quran, which is the Bible for the Muslims, has many passages concerning the Blessed Virgin. First of all, the Quran believes in her immaculate conception and also in her virgin birth, of course, because Muhammad was advised by Catholics and propped by Catholics. The third chapter of the Quran places the history of Mary's family in a genealogy which goes back through Abraham, Noah, and Adam. When one compares the Quran's description of the birth of Mary with the apocryphal gospel of the birth of Mary, which is a Gnostic text, one is tempted to believe that Muhammad is very much dependent upon the latter, meaning the, the false narrative. Both books reveal the old age and the definite sterility of the mother of Mary. When, however, she conceives, the mother of Mary is made to say in the Quran, O Lord, I vow and I consecrate you to what is already within me, accept it from me. So, you know, what's the point here? The point is that <laughs> this is the point, what he just said, that Mary is the object, it's the, it's the thread of how the thread of Islam and, cause, and Catholicism will be united. The, the divine manipulation of the thread. This is the sovereign's chief obsession, according to the art of war. And he is manipulating the threads. Now, again, you have to see the threads here. It's very clear that this is paganism. And paganism is what? It's really just worship of Lucifer, the god of many names, whether it's the nature god or the god of fertility or the moon god or the sun god, Mithra is the Romans worship. It's all the same spiritual principality parading around under different names and titles and functions. The God of many names. Yeah, the God of this world. He's not the God, but he's a false God. And so ultimately that false God is moving all the threads that he started 
into one thread, into one world religion that will worship him. And it will happen because the Bible says it will happen. So you have to wake up. Now, again, five times is the is the term queen of heaven mentioned in Jeremiah. It's found in various places, but the queen of heaven is a pagan thing. Queen of heaven, Wikipedia, antiquity. Queen of heaven was a title given to a number of ancient sky goddesses worshipped throughout the ancient Mediterranean and the ancient Near East. Goddesses known to have been referred to by the title include Inanna, Anat, Isis, Nut, Ashtart, and possibly Asherah, which is by the prophet Jeremiah. In Greco-Roman times, Hera and Juno bore this title. Forms and content of worship varied. The Queen of Heaven is a pagan title. It was going on very actively even during the first couple centuries of Christianity, and it got appropriated. The people who rule these organizations are secret society occult members that know the truth of what they are appropriating it. The people who don't realize it think that they are paying homage to God, think that they're being faithful, when in reality, they are being used for their conscious attention as spiritual slaves. And this is the system that the devil has had throughout all time. In the beginning, it was with fallen angels and Nephilim and a world network, and then the world got flooded. Then they tried with the Tower of Babel, then God disrupted them. Then they, you know, had all these different pagan religions everywhere, the Aztecs in the Americas, the Mayans, the Incas, in the ancient Near East, in India, all these false gods are all just the same person. I mean, you look throughout history, everywhere you look, it's always the same spiritual entity. In the Americas, America's called the land of the plume serpent. Look at look into it. It's a great, fascinating documentary. But the America is not named after Amerigo Vespucci. America was a it was a word that the Indians were using, and it means plumed serpent. It means it means a snake, the divine snake. They worshipped the snake. The Indians with Buddha and and Chinese with Buddha and the Indians with Hindus and the snakes, they all worshipped the snake, snake goddess, snake gods, snake imagery, divine snakes, Kundalini. It's all snake, snake, snake. So you have to look into these things and see that they're not. They look like separate different things, but it's really just the same principality. So Catholics and Muslims are 2 billion plus people in the world, and they are all very highly reverent of Mary. Orthodox too. So if you add all these people together, you have just about 30% of the world's population, which is a massive number of people, all attuned to the same pagan lie. Remember that the Immaculate Conception is a heresy. The idea that, of course, Jesus had no sin, but the Immaculate Conception teaches that Mary is born sinless. And so what is why is that important? It's not true, but it teaches that, and in a way, it, again, it subtly diverts your attention. Jesus gets his merits, his sinlessness, from his mother, not from his father, which is what the truth is. But again, if you are worshiping a fertility cult, sun, moon, goddess worship, divine feminine, all these things, then you have to do these subtle subterfuges to fool people into giving their attention to these things so that you can give them power. That's what these occultists believe. It's all about manipulating your attention. Now, remember also that the Bible says there's no mediator between God and man other than Jesus. He's the only one. There's no co-redemptrix. 
There's no mediator. There's no priest that you can go to for forgiveness. Jesus is the one you ask for forgiveness and repentance, and you engage with him in a relationship every single day. That's the gospel. Mary ultimately is a way to worship and subtly transfer conscious attention to Lucifer. Sounds crazy if you've never heard this before, but look at all the things we've covered. Look at all the things we've covered in past episodes with Helena Blavatsky, with the beginning of the United States, what the Statue of Liberty represents, what she thought about the Celestial Virgin, Isis. All these things are just occult. They deal with symbolism that is designed to mean something to you on the outside, but to mean something to them very different on the inside. You have to remember this. It's all shadow, smoke, and mirrors. So just like the Holy Spirit, or I should say the false Holy Spirit, is a dialectic to bring Protestants together back with the Mother Church through the charismatic movement, we all have the same God, you know, we all have the same spiritual experiences. Mary is the way that they're going to bring Islam together with the Catholic Church. And I'm not the one, I'm not the only one that said it, as you can see. A lot of other very well-educated people smarter than me testify to this idea that this is the thread that will unite those two religions back together again and achieve the purpose that the Pope wanted to achieve a thousand plus years ago when Muhammad was basically propped up. But it went out of control. So now they're, they're coming back in control slowly because they have to. So Islam and Catholicism are very similar. They're both pagan mystery religions. The papacy is the beast. And it will use Mary to bring Islam back into submission or to create a one world religion. Somehow, who knows how? The point is not knowing the exact details of how, but to be aware that if you do see an apparition of Mary, or if you see these things start changing and moving towards the one direction, you know who's behind it. Look at the Abrahamic family house. I mean, what does Judaism have in common with Christianity? Judaism is rebellion to the Hebrew scriptures. Judaism has nothing in common with the Hebrew scriptures. It's a legalistic, rebellion, stiff-necked, stubborn approach to the scriptures where they reject the Messiah that the 2,000 years of scriptures foretold. Judaism wasn't officialized until 800 AD. In fact, I think Islam is older than Judaism if you really want to get down to brass tacks. Of course, they'll say, no, Judaism is very old. It's down to the Old Testament. No, it's not. If you had been aligned with the Old Testament, you would have accepted Jesus as the Messiah, just like a lot of the Jews did in Jesus's time. So Judaism has nothing in line with Christianity. Neither does Islam. Islam denies the deity of Christ and the, and the atonement on the cross. So why would you build an Abrahamic family? Oh, we're all family through Abraham, of course. Do you see how they do it? They, they never go with Jesus because Jesus is the truth, just like he said. He's the way, the truth, and the life. They have to go either through the Holy Spirit, and we have, well, we have the same experiences, oh, through Mary or through Abraham. This is called dragon talk, and it's designed to move the world back into power under the beast, which will happen again. Now, the last two things I want to look at briefly are secret societies and the black cube in Mecca. So basically, you know, again, you know from the French Revolution that 
this was even long before. I mean, you had Rosicrucians, the Knight Templars, secret societies and, and underground mystery cults have been around since the dawn of time. They all worship the devil. Again, the worship of the devil is the oldest religion in history. It's come in different forms and different sects, and they all kind of compete with one another to some degree, but it's it's all one religion. And the secret societies, they worship the devil. So ultimately, we have to come to terms with how pervasive these secret societies are in religion, in both Catholicism and Islam, by the way, really everywhere. I mean, once you learn the truth, you realize that it's everywhere. But I want you to learn a few things. So we're going to learn about some secret society symbolism. Okay, this is the all-seeing eye, and let's read a little bit about it. From the Grand Lodge of British Columbia and the Yukon. An important symbol of the supreme being, borrowed by the Freemasons from the nations of antiquity. Interesting. Both the Hebrews and the Egyptians appear to have derived its use from the natural inclination of figurative minds to select an organ as the symbol of the function which it is intended peculiarly to discharge. Thus, the foot was often adopted as a symbol of swiftness, the arm of strength, and the hand of fidelity. So this is an old symbol, as old as time. On the same principle, the Egyptians presented Osiris, their chief deity, by the symbol of an open eye, and placed this hieroglyphic of him in all their temples. His symbolic name on the monuments was represented by the eye accompanying a throne, to which was sometimes added the abbreviated figure of the god, and sometimes what has been called hatchet, but which may be correctly be supposed to be a representation of a square. The square and compass, the eye, the all-seeing eye, this is throughout the occult world. And you see it on the dollar bill. You saw it on the French Revolution Declaration of the Rights of Man and Every Citizen. You see it everywhere. And the occult eye is the eye of Horus. And, of course, on the dollar bill, it's the left eye. Isn't that interesting? It's the left eye. And if you remember in the occult, I don't know if we talked about this, but the left is associated with the moon or feminine and the right is associated with the sun or masculine so why is the left eye on the dollar bill and in, in this illuminated position the, the eye of the moon associated with the moon we know that all these things are kind of tying together we do we talked about shriners and we'll look at them again today but look at all these things tying together it's just really crazy this is about horus from the encyclopedia britannica Horus is an ancient Egyptian religion, a god in the form of a falcon whose right eye was the sun or the morning star, what we just mentioned, representing power and quintessence, and whose left eye was the moon or evening star, representing healing. Oh, isn't that nice? So the left eye is the moon, which we know Allah is the moon god, and a lot of these secret society members, you'll see, they put their allegiance to Allah. Now, this is called the Templar Revelation, and it's a book written by Lynn Picknett, Secret Guardians of the True Identity of Christ. Now, this is a bit of an occult book, so it, it doesn't tell you the truth, but it tells you what they believe, which is very interesting. So we're going to look a little bit at it. Okay, so we're going to look at page 42 through 43. Again, anytime somebody tells you that there is a secret life of Jesus or secret teachings that you need to know, don't pay attention to it because it's bogus. It's, Jesus said himself that he said nothing in secret. The threads of heresy, interesting word choice there. The Priory of Sion first came to the attention of the English 
speaking world as late as 1982 through the best-selling The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail by Michael Bajant, Richard Lee, and Henry Lincoln. Although in its homeland of France, reports of its existence gradually became public from the early 1960s. We'll find out about what this prior of Zion really is. It is a quasi-Masonic or chivalric order with certain political ambitions, and it seems considerable behind-the-scenes power. It seems that it has considerable behind-the-scenes power. Having said that, it is notoriously difficult to categorize the priory, perhaps because there is something essentially chimerical about the whole operation. There is, there was nothing, however, illusory about the information given to us by the representative of the priory, whom we met in early 1991. The meeting being the result of a series of rather bizarre letters sent to us after a radio discussion about the Turin Shroud, which is also another relic and that the Catholic Church uses to bring people to pilgrimages and all kind of fakery. What led up to this slightly surreal rendezvous is detailed in our previous book, but for the moment, it will suffice to say that the one that one named Giovanni, whom we only ever knew under this pseudonym, an Italian who claimed to be a high-ranking member of the Priory of Sion, had watched us carefully in very early stages of our research into Leonardo and the Shroud. For whatever reason, he had finally decided to tell us about certain of the organization's interests, and perhaps even to involve us in its plans. Much of that information was to lead eventually, after we somewhat tortuously checked it out, to our book on the Turin Shroud, but at least the same amount, again, had no relevance to that work and was therefore omitted from it. Despite the often startling or even shocking implication of Giovanni's information, we were compelled to take at least the major part of it seriously, simply because our independent research confirmed it. For example, the image of the Shroud of Turin behaves like a photograph. Again, all this stuff is just occult, uh, you know, cult stuff. I'll keep reading here. But keep in mind what they're after, which is a one-world religion. It's like a photograph because, as we have demonstrated, that is precisely what it is. So they think the Shroud of Turin was a photograph and that it's actually the real Shroud. And if, as he claimed, Giovanni's information really did come from priory archives, then there is a reason to approach the notion of there, perhaps with a little healthy skepticism, but by no means with the out-and-out denial of many of their detractors. When we first became involved in the secret world of Leonardo, we soon realized that if their shadowy society had really been uh, an, an integral part of his life, then it might go a long way towards explaining his driving force. Of course, the Catholic papacy was behind all of these icons like Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo. It, they're all just agents, man. Anybody who's propped up in history in the last 1,500 years, you have to be very questionable about it. If he had really been part of a powerful underground network of some kind, his influential patrons, such as Lorenzo de' Medici, who was one of the papal families, Francis I of France, may also have been implicated. There did appear to be some shadowy organization behind Leonardo's obsessions, but was it, as some claim, actually the Prior of Sion? The Prior of Sion claims it's true, so I'm, you know you could keep reading, but the point of this was to introduce you to this idea that you have these shadowy organizations that have been around for a very, very long time. And they were just continuations of the mystery religions, and they went underground with Christianity, but they got repatriated, reappropriated as 
people on the outside thought, you know, Christianity was was flourishing. In reality, it was the mystery religion that was getting back into the scenes, and Satan was having his way creating this counterfeit religion. Because that's the point. The point is to bring a one-world government that serves Lucifer. Now, that takes a long time. That takes a lot of steps. So what do you have to do? You have to create confusion and all kinds of other things. This is uh, a book called Freemasonry, Classic Collection by Albert G. Mackey. And I'm going to read a little paragraph here. In the Mysteries was also taught... Let me just close this. In the Mysteries was also taught the division of the universal cause into an active and passive cause, yin and yang, of, of which two, Osiris and Isis, the heavens and the earth, were symbols. These two first causes into which it was held a great universal first cause at the beginning of things divided itself. So just pagan ideology here. Were the two great divinities who, whose worship was, according to Varro, in calculated upon the initiates of the Samothrace. As it is taught, he says, in the initiations of the mysteries as Samothrace, again, heaven and earth, are regarded as the two first divinities. They are the potent gods worshipped in the island and whose names are consecrated in the books of the augurs. One of them is male and the other is female. And they bear the same relation to each other as the soul does to the body, humidity to dryness, and so on. The curates in Crete had built their altar to heaven and earth, whose mysteries they celebrated at Gnosis in Cyprus Grove. Like these people have been worshiping duality since the beginning. The book of Romans testifies to this. Paul says that they worship the creature rather than the creator. The creator has no duality. God created duality because it's good and beautiful, but they worship duality instead of giving God the credit as the creator, and they use duality to try to be like God. This is the mystery religions all in a nutshell. And the lie from the Garden of Eden, that you don't need God, you can be the master of what is good and evil, of yin and yang, of the duality that God created. Of course, that's a lie. This is Morals and Dogma, and this is a very famous book by Alfred Pike on Freemasonry. But we're going to read a little bit about it, and this is on page 11, I believe. Okay, this is page 11 towards the bottom. The Holy Bible, square, and compass are not only styled the great lights of the masonry, but they are also technically called the furniture of the lodge, and as you have seen, it is held that there is no lodge without them. This has sometimes been made a pretext for excluding Jews from our lodges because they cannot regard the New Testament as a holy book. The Bible is an indispensable part of the furniture of the Christian lodge only because it is the sacred book of the Christian religion. The Hebrew Pentateuch is in a Hebrew lodge and the Quran in a Mohammedanian one belong on the altar. And one of these and the square and compass properly understood are the great lights by which a mason must walk and work. It's not the Pentateuch and it's not the Bible. It's the Quran. According to Alfred Pike, who was one of the major figures in Freemasonry and wrote the Morals and Dogma, the Quran, when properly understood, is the great light of Freemasonry. Very interesting, isn't it? This is the Shriners About Us International Organization Overview. You can see we read about Shriners and how there's so many people that you know in politics and history, presidents, Actors as Shriners, but look at their their emblem. It's a scimitar with a crescent moon 
and a star, which is the sun. Again, it's fertility goddess worship, and a pharaoh. This is all occult stuff. And again, if you know that to be a Shriner, you have to be a high-ranking Freemason. And all these people in politics and, and religion everywhere, they're part of this group. Why are they choosing to symbolize themselves like this? Look what they tell you about it. The emblem on the front side of the fez, the crescent and scimitar, is an integral part of fraternity's theme and is representative of the characteristics embodied of the Shriners. The scimitar, the scimitar stands for the backbone of the fraternity and its members. The two claws are the Shriners' fraternity and its philanthropy. Oh my gosh, what a what a great symbol for fraternity and philanthropy is to have two claws, which really it's actually a crescent moon. The Sphinx stands for this governing body of the Shriners. Why not God? But of course, that's not the God that they worship. The five-pointed star represents the thousands of children helped by the philanthropy each year. Really? I mean, if you believe this, you, you really have to do more research. The emblem also bears the phrase Robator et Futur, which means strength and fury. Notice how this is in Latin. Again, language of the beast. So this is, this is what they tell you on the surface, but then as you get initiated, there's other things that happen as we will soon find out. This is from a book called The Deadly Deception by James D. Shaw. And it's on page 75. So we're going to look at this a little bit closer. Okay, so this is about a person who used to be a, a Freemason. He is exposing a lot of their things, but this is a testimony of his. Let's see what it says from here. We began initiation about noon that Saturday. After the medical screening came the hazing, which was very childish. Some of it was not only childish, but downright vulgar. At one point, we were placed in a large mesh cage, and one of the Shriners climbed upon it. He exposed a very convincing rubber penis, which was connected to a water bag concealed in his clothing, and hosed down all of us in the cage to the delight and howls of the spectators. After the hazing, it was time for the serious part, the ritual, and then time to take the oath. We took the obligation again with the terrible bloody consequences if we revealed any of these secrets, one form of mayhem, we promised to accept was to have our eyeballs pierced to the center of a sharp three-edged blade. And with the Quran on the altar, take note, we sealed our solemn oath in the name of Allah, the God of Arab, Muslim, and Mohammedanian, the God of our fathers. So what's going on here? This person was taking an oath, Freemasons, Shriners. What did he see on the altar? He saw the Quran. What did Albert Pike say? That one of the books that he listed with the square and compass, if properly understood, is the great light of Freemasonry, is the Quran. Why are they swearing an oath to Allah? Because they know that Allah means the God. It's not a proper name. It means the God, the God of many names. Which, and again, if you're, the, these are different layers of initiation to learn these things. And it's at the very top levels, you know who it really is, which is Lucifer the light bearer. And Albert Pike talks about this in his morals and dogma all the time. And just like Helena Blavatsky, who's, who just idolizes Lucifer as their savior, they all believe and worship in the devil. And of course, the devil is real, but they worship the devil, which is just terrible. This is called The Revolt Against Islam. And this is from a place, uh, it's a presentation by Nesta Webster is called Secret Societies and Subversive Movements. 
And there's a lot of good stuff in this, but I wanted to talk to you about specifically the Fatimites and the Assassins. The founder of the Fatimite dynasty, or the Khalifas, was one Ubedillah, known as the Mahdi, accused of Jewish ancestry by his adversaries, the Abbasids, who declared, apparently without truth, that he was the son of a grandson of Ahmed, son of Abdullah ibn Mayyum by a Jewess. Under the fourth Fatimite Khalifa, Egypt fell into the power of the dynasty and therefore long biweekly assemblages of both men and women, known as Societies of Wisdom, were instituted in Cairo. Did you know that? Secret societies have been around everywhere and every place. In 1004, these acquired a greater importance by the establishment of the Dar ul-Khimaid, or the House of Knowledge, by the sixth Khalifa Hakim, who was raised to a deity after his death and is worshipped to this day by the Druzes. Under the direction of the Darul Hikmat or Grand Lodge of Cairo, the Fatimites continued the plan of Abdullah ibn Mayyam's secret society with the addition of two more degrees, making nine in all. Their method of enlisting proselytes and system of initiation, which, as Claudio Janet points out, are absolutely those which Weishaupt, the founder of the Illuminati, prescribed to the insinuating brothers, were transcribed by the 14th century historian Noiri in a description that may, be, that may be briefly summarized as thus, quote, The proselytes or initiates were broadly divided into two classes, the learned and the ignorant. The die was to agree with the former, applauding his wisdom and to impress the latter with his knowledge by asking him perplexing questions on the Quran. Thus, in initiating him into the first degree, the die assumed an air of profundity and explained that religious doctrines were too abstract, abstruse for the ordinary mind, but must be interpreted by men who, like the Dace, had a special knowledge of this science. Do you see what's going on here? This is all Gnosticism. It's the same stuff, secret knowledge. The truth is not is beyond your grasp. You need somebody to tell you what it is, other than God. The initiate was bound to absolute secrecy concerning the truths to be revealed to him, and obliged to pay in advance for these revelations. In order to pique his curiosity, the die would suddenly stop short in the middle of the discourse, and should the novice finally decline to pay attention, pay the required sum, he was left in a state of bewilderment, which inspired him with the desire to know more. So it's just manipulative tactics to manipulate people into basically looking for authority and wisdom to men instead of looking to God and trusting God. But what can you do? The Assassins, that's another group. There's a lot of groups in this article, but I just want to focus on two of them. Thus, as in the case of the French Revolution, we know all about that, whose first movers, Von Hammer, also observes, were the tools of leaders of secret societies. It was not mere theory, but the method of enlisting numerous dupes and placing weapons in their hands and brought about the terror of the Assassins six centuries before that of their spiritual descendants, the Jacobins. The Jacobins, the Jesuits, Jacobins were an occult secret society, and they were put on to start the French Revolution by the Jesuits. But let's look at the history. Taking as his groundwork the organization of the Grand Lodge of Cairo, Hassan reduced the nine degrees to their original number of seven. But these now received a definite nomenclature and included not only real initiates, but active agents. Descending downwards, the degrees of the assassins were thus as follows. First, the Grand Master, known as the Sheikh al-Jabal, or Old Man of the Mountain. Owing to the fact that the order always possessed itself of castles in mountainous regions, high places. There we go again. 
Second, the Dal El Kabir Grand Priors. Third, the fully initiated Dace, religious nuncios, and political emissaries. So, I mean, you had all these degrees, basically. And again, you had no difference between this and the Illuminati, the Jacobins, the Freemasons. It's all the same thing. So my point in showing you this is that Islam is not immune to the things that happen in Europe and in America. It's all one system. And the beast rules this system through secret societies and secret orders because they all worship the same thing. When you come down to it, they all worship the same thing. So what can you take from this? Well, that you should have discernment. You should have discernment. So ultimately... There's a lot to go over. We still have a little bit with the black cube. I won't, I won't spend too much time on it, but I wanted to build all this foundation so that you see that secret societies are everywhere. They're continuations of the mystery religions, the fertility cults. The Ultimately, they're continuations of the lie of the Garden of Eden, that you can be like God, knowing good and evil, that you have secret knowledge, that look to the snake for wisdom, to look to God. You can't trust God's word. That's the lie. The worship of Satan is the oldest religion on earth. It's in various forms, various names, the God of many names. These occult practices are behind everything. They're behind Islam, Catholicism, all these other religions on earth. Again, if you look at Mormonism, it's the founders were secret society members. Many of these people who are in religion and politics, Protestants, they're all secret society members. It's, it's fascinating. Billy Graham was a Freemason, you know, and you look at uh, these people meeting with the Pope that we looked at last time, Joel Osteen, all these people that are all secret society members. That's why they don't have a problem meeting with the Pope and saying, oh, he's just an amazing guy. That's their reward, their earthly reward, but they're going to have a spiritual punishment for their disobedience. And that'll be a day to regret if you are on the wrong side. All these leaders of political and religious and whatever other leaders, they pay homage to this system. It's all connected. If you're a Muslim or a Catholic, you have to wake up. You have to wake up to these things. You have to know these things. And again, you can spend your whole life studying these things, so it's not about knowing the details. But I hope I've given you enough details to see the bigger picture, that this is all just one system. Jesus said nothing in secret. His words are very simple, but extremely profound, extremely profound. And yet man still tries to work for his godhood. So now we have the black cube. I want to look at the black cube really quick and the black cube in Mecca because the Muslims have a black cube that they orbit around, which is a very pagan thing to do. And ultimately, uh, you have to wake up to the truth of that. But let's look back at morals and dogma. And this is going to be on page five of Morals and Dogma. Again, remember the the Quran is the light of Freemasonry. And on page five, you will see the perfect ashlar. You see a black cube and talking about its significance, spiritual significance to Freemasonry. And this comes up quite a lot. So let's, let's look at some other sources. This is Isis Unveiled. This is uh, Helena Blavatsky again. This is going to be page 578, I believe we want to look at. Okay, this is page 578, and she says this. Now, we have but to remember that Shiva and the Palestinian Baal, she knew that the Arabs worship Baal and Allah, or Moloch and Saturn are identical. So that's what she says straight from the horse's mouth. Saturn, Moloch, Baal, Shiva... 
the God of many names. Do you see what's going on here? The people who are on the highest levels who are initiated, Blavatsky was a 32nd degree Freemason. She knows who the God of many names is. That's the revelation that you find out, the secret, the secret doctrine. You find out that Lucifer is the one behind all these things. He's the God of this world. You should worship him. Of course, that's a total lie and deception because there's only one true God and he's revealed himself openly and without any secrets. But if you are in love with the world and the devil has blinded you, then in some sense it is the best kept secret because many people stumble against the cross. But all these gods are the same. So Saturn, keep that in mind. Saturn, Baal, Shiva, Moloch, these are all the same. Now this is the black cube of Saturn. If you're familiar with that, if not, then prepare to be <laughs> surprised because all these black cubes everywhere Santa Ana, Manhattan, Australia, Denmark. You have these giant statues of black cubes. The black cube is an occult symbol. Black Rock, if you're familiar with them, it's an investment company. They own practically everything in the world. Omen, look at this, Windows 10, there's a black cube. Uh, you know, have these various advertisements, these black cube structures, statues, art exhibits, quote-unquote art exhibits, movies with black hollow cages, black cubes in them. The black cube is just everywhere, man. I mean, it's just, it's really fascinating. And you have this paraphernalia. And so what does it represent to the occult? That's the question. You have so many different things in pop culture with the black cube that, uh, you know, it's it's just very telling. And if you know anything, again, about the One-Eyed Club and all these people that belong to secret societies in, in Hollywood and everything else, it's it's all one big club and you and I ain't in it. The black cube is everywhere. So anytime you see a black cube as an art exhibit, as you know, some sort of ad or movie, you know, pay attention because there's some occult stuff going on. Satan and the black cube of Saturn. Saturn is associated with Satan. Remember, Satan is Shiva or Saturn is Shiva, is Moloch, is Baal. Saturn is an important key to understanding the long heritage of this conspiracy is back to antiquity. The city of Rome was originally known as Saturnia, or City of Saturn. Isn't that interesting? The Roman Catholic Church retains much of the Saturn worship in its ritual. Saturn also relates to Lucifer. In the various occult dictionaries, Saturn is associated with evil. That's from Fritz Springmeier. I believe he also wrote the uh, Illuminati bloodlines, but I could be mistaken. You have Moloch on this page associated with, you know, Baal, Saturn, Satan. It's all the same thing. Moloch bull represented today on Wall Street. Did you know the bull on Wall Street is a symbol of Moloch? Look, paganism hasn't gone anywhere. But now we get to the the black cube in Mecca, which is this giant black cube that people are basically idolizing and worshiping and moving around. The black cube in Mecca in the occult is called the hypercube. Hyper it represents mind control. That's why the TV is black and cube shape. Okay, so they go into some other things. Fair warning, these people think even the cross is a cube. They say, oh, see, if you unfold a cube, it turns into a cross. But ultimately, what if the cross is longer? Then it's no longer a cube. So that's a faulty reasoning. And we have a whole episode on the history of the cross and how it's not a pagan symbol. But again, you have to be, you have to use discernment because a lot of these sites that expose this stuff, they also go down rabbit holes that get them deceived. But the cube is, look, look at the cube. It's got six you know, six uh, six points, 
six, it encompasses the, you know, in a two-dimensional way, it encompasses the up arrow and the down arrow, the star of Remfam, right? Remember the occult star, the, the male and female joined to create a fertility. It's a sexual fertility cult. And in the middle, you have a cube as a result, a hexagon. And the, and the star itself goes into a cube. So it's all just occult symbolism and occult knowledge. You have Shiva. Shiva is associated with, you know, these things too. Look at Shiva, a picture of Shiva with his hand up and one down. Doesn't it remind you of the Baphomet? Same thing. I mean, it's just, it's all the God of many names, which is really just Lucifer. The pre-Islamic Kaaba housed the black stone and statues of pagan gods. Muhammad reportedly cleansed the Kaaba of idols upon his victorious return to Mecca, returning the shrine to the monotheism of Ibrahim. The black stone is believed to have been given to Ibrahim by the angel Gabriel. Really? What angel are we really talking about? I don't think Gabriel would give him a black stone to idolize. But another angel would and is revered by Muslims. And so, you know, we have the history, we looked at the pagan history of the Kaaba of Islam and of the name Allah. The Kaaba is a pagan site. The Kaaba and pre-Islamic Mecca. Let's read about it. On Rituals Encyclopedia of Islam states this, It is incontrovertible that Islam took from the pagan Arabs an entire pre-Islamic ritual, previously steeped in paganism. This ritual is the veneration of and the pilgrimage to the Kaaba at Mecca. For the pre-Islamic Arabs, the Kaaba was the center of worship where the Jahilis prayed and went around it seven times. This is all pagan stuff, guys. The Kaaba, I mean, you don't need that much discernment to realize that when you see people orbiting a black cube and bowing down to it, that it's a pagan thing. And it shouldn't be done because the God that created the universe, the only God, is not contained by physical objects. He, he's not, you know, more in one place than another. He's omnipresent. And if you accept Jesus into your life, you have trust in him, you have faith in the gospel, then you have access to that relationship that you can have anywhere. You don't have to go to these holy places or bow down to any rocks. I mean, it's all just pagan stuff. Look, ironically, okay, Surah 5, verse 47 Let's go to the Quran really quick. What does it say? So let the people of the gospel judge by what Allah has revealed in it. And those who do not judge by what Allah has revealed are truly rebellious. So the Quran says that we should judge according, if you're a Christian, you should judge according to the gospel. Well, what does the gospel say about these things? What does it say about Islam? Well, gospel is contradictory to Islam. So that means that if I'm judging by the gospel, then I judge Islam to be false. It's a false religion for several reasons that we've covered some of them today. And we know also from Surah 69 that if Muhammad was false, then he would die by an aorta death, something related to his aorta. So let's look at that. This is Surah 69, verse 44 through 47. And if he, Muhammad, had forged a false saying concerning us, we surely would have seized him by his right hand or with power and might, and then certainly should have cut off his life artery, his aorta. So, his, so if he was a false prophet, then he would get his aorta cut off. And none of you could withhold us from him, punishing him. Okay, now let's look at Sahih Bukhari. This is uh, Volume 5, Book 59, Hadith 713. The prophet, in his ailment in which he died, used to say, Oh, Aisha, I still feel the pain caused by the food I ate at Kaibar. 
and at this time I feel as if my aorta is being cut from that poison. So you have in one part on Surah 69, if Muhammad is a false teacher, then he will die by his aorta being cut off. How did Muhammad die? He was poisoned and he felt that his aorta was being cut off and he had a very painful death. So according to the Quran itself, is, a, is Muhammad a false prophet? And the answer is yes. Very contradictory book. Doesn't have anything that makes sense in it. So look, if you judge by the gospel, Islam is a false religion. It's a pagan religion, just like Catholicism, if you judge by the gospel. But even according to itself, Muhammad was a false teacher. And if you realize that we're told to have discernment, to not listen to angels, to not go into caves, to not worship pagan, do pagan things with sun and moon, it's very clear that these are pagan religions. And who is behind paganism? It's the devil. There's only God, Yahweh, the true God, and the devil and his legions. The devil has created a worldwide matrix to fool you, to deceive you into worshiping him instead of God. That's been since the dawn of time. And that system is coming to a close. It's coming to a close in these final generations, possibly this generation, possibly this generation, because certainly everything we've covered in this end time series seems to suggest that that's the case, that all of the things are coming to a head where the kings of the earth will give their power to the beast and we will see a one world religion. Certainly, so far you've seen that Protestant America is uniting with the beast, religion and politics is being blurred, things are moving back to the right, to Christian nationalism, and Islam is being prepared to accept Mary and, of course, Jesus through their end times views, through the way that they were started by the Catholics. All these things are the divine manipulation of the threads. So look, behind the big, the big picture is this, and this is why I hope you will see from all this detail, because you could spend hours and hours and hours on this stuff. Behind the scenes, all of it's just one religion. It's the worship of Lucifer. The papacy created Islam, it got out of control, and now it's being reunited slowly. And it will, because the Bible predicts that it will, and, and that all people will marvel after the beast. The worship of Mary will play a role in unifying these religions, and possibly even with Protestants. We see the Abrahamic family house was established in 2023, uniting religions one step further. That's a big sign. Things are moving. We have the third temple. You know, again, that's a dialectic. It's not Bible prophecy being unfolded. It's a dialectic designed to bring about a false end times, possibly a false return of Christ. Who knows? But the Bible predicted the rise of the Ottoman Empire, which we will cover. So Islam had a role in judgment to play against the papacy. It fulfilled that role. Now it has a role in the dialectic of the Middle East with the Jews, the third temple, fulfilling this false end times prophecy and bringing about a false golden age where people will think that we are here, that Christ has possibly even come, that it's a good thing to have church and state unified. And that's it. If you don't accept that system, you will, you will be cast out or killed. So the future will be a unification of religion and state under the papacy Secret societies are going to play a major role in fulfilling that. They already are, and they have been since forever. And my point to you is this. If you're a Muslim or you know any Muslims, abandon this religion. Abandon this religion. Give your life to Christ because he's the truth. He's the only one that has told the truth, and he's the only one that's capable of saving you. 
Muhammad was a false prophet. He was being guided by the devil under various names, just like other people in history have been guided, like Constantine, to create an institution, institutionalized religion that would block people from the gospel, just like Catholicism did. They both serve the same purpose. So you know they have the same author. If you're a Catholic or you know anybody who's Catholic, then I also urge you the same. Leave that religion and embrace a personal relationship with Jesus. Read your Bibles, study, and realize that this system that you're in was prophesied by John, by Daniel, and the Reformers saw it for what it is. And that's why the Reformation created Protestantism. And of course, from there, things just got crazy because the whole point of Protestantism wasn't really to found another religion, but to protest against this misuse of Scripture. So being a true Protestant is really just protesting the beast. It's not about being a particular religion. So I urge you to see the truth before it's too late because this system will come into power. It will demand worship. And of course, then the return of Christ will come and issue judgment, final judgment. And if you're on the wrong side at that point in time, then that is the worst possible situation to be in. So I hope that you've seen the truth. I hope this has blessed you. I hope that's given you strength. I know these episodes are a little bit longer, uh, but hopefully they've been a resource to you and they've helped to open your eyes. Until next time, God bless and stay healthy and we'll see you next week.